Hello out there. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. Whatever time of day you happen to be listening to this podcast, Morris is my name. You're listening to Love That Album. And we're up to episode 49. My goodness, I never thought I'd be making it this far because the next episode, if you've done your arithmetic correctly, is episode 50. But that's a few weeks away. We're going to concentrate tonight on episode 49, and I am really very, very pleased, very, very happy to welcome back to the virtual chair, the Skype landline tin cans with a string, Mr. Michael Persh over in Adelaide. Good evening, Michael. Oh, mate, how you doing? Always always a pleasure, and and you would be well past 50 if you didn't take weeks off all the time. Uh, I haven't been taking weeks off. I've just been sort of like taking longer and longer between doing shows. That's, That's all planned. Yeah, that's it's not that's not me getting slack. That's just me, you know, um, spreading out the love, as it were. But yes, I I, I do see a point. I know that there's um, there's uh, another podcast which I dearly love, Silver and Gold. Uh, they're I, I think as as we're speaking tonight, they're recording episode one hundred, and I think that they've been recording their show for as long as I've been recording my show. So. There you go. They they're just hard workers. Those uh, silver and gold boys loafing zom. So, Maybe yours is just quality, not quantity, mate. Oh, don't, don't say that about about those <laughs> guys. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen. Sylvester Stallone is going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. He's he's a regular contributor to their show. You didn't know that, did you? I didn't know that. No, oh, well, <laughs> there you go. Anyway, um, good evening. Welcome. Uh, it's lovely to have you back because I think it's been a few episodes. I don't even remember what the last, probably uh, Richard Clapton's Great Escape. And that was a few episodes back. It is all back indeed. Mm. So, um, we'll just let the listeners know out there what it is that we're covering tonight in case they haven't bothered to uh, look at their iPod or whatever it is that they're listening to the show through. Um, we're covering my favourite Australian band ever. I don't know where they stand in your long run, but given that you're you know, a fan of hundreds and hundreds of bands, it's probably, I don't, I don't know if you could make that call, but my favourite band, Weddings, Parties, Anything. I've mentioned them on Love That Album a number of times. I've mentioned them on posts on Facebook. I've even gone on a couple of other podcasts and, and sung their praises. I, I must have seen them live about 40, 50 times um, during their day. And um, yeah, so I, I can't believe it's taken this long to actually talk about them. We're going to discuss their third album, The Big Don't Argue. Um, before we get into a little bit of uh, general weddings talk, um, so we don't generally tend to talk so much nowadays on these sorts of shows. We leave it for shooting the shit as to you know what you've been listening to or what you've been seeing, but I don't know, I just haven't caught up with you for a while. So really, Michael, what gigs have you been seeing in, in uh, recent times? Well, I did, I did text you during the week from... Um between the uh, the opening act and, and Todd Rundgren, who I went and saw in Adelaide. so uh, And, yes, yeah, we, we sort of talked a little bit. Uh, it was uh, it was interesting. And, and I, if folks remember, we spoke about um, the Tube's remote control mm. way, way back, didn't we? Yeah. And, and I spoke about Todd Rundgren, who was the producer of that album. And he, he's very, very well known as a producer. I guess most well known for... Uh, bad out of hell from Meatloaf, but he's done heaps and heaps of things, um, including Dragon. Dragon, I think, is the only Australian band he ever produced. Did he but, produce Dragon? Yeah, it, um, Dreams of Ordinary Men he produced. Oh, okay, okay. Which, which I really, which I had my fingers crossed that he'd pull out um, and do an encore of, of one of those tunes because he's, I think, in the last couple of years he put an album together of reworkings of songs from you know different albums that he produced, and it was a great album. 
So I was a bit disappointed with that. But um, yeah. So so Todd has he's been to Melbourne and Sydney a couple of times, I think. Uh, he was he he put out a blues album maybe two thousand and nine, and I'm, I know he toured and played Sydney Melbourne only. But it was a very weird tour. He you know played all this old Robert Johnson stuff and, yep. and nothing nothing even vaguely like anything else he's done. So. And and he came out with Ringo earlier in the year, right? Yep, that's right. Yep. And and I didn't get to that gig, and I'm still kicking myself for not going to that. That's another story. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was to my delight that I saw he was coming back with his own band. So I, uh, and 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 as fate would have it, I rushed and bought a ticket. Um, and then the day of the gig, the um, the promoters emails, oh, would you like a freebie to Todd Run? Oh, no. no. So I ended up giving it to the guitar player and my band and he's a good lady. So. Okay. Anyway. But so, um, so if you, yeah, Todd Rundgren has been around for, uh, since the 60s. So, he, you know, he's, he's 65, I think. Wow. But he's, you know, he, he turned up on stage with, with this, this long hair and I can't remember which way around, but the, the, the underneath of his hair was sort of, um, was bleached blonde and the other half of it was bleached black. And it was just, you know, this, if I if I could be that trendy when I'm sixty, well, it's not going to happen. <laughs> you're already but, that trendy, and you're only fifty. So. <laughs> but it, yeah, so um, but I the stuff he's done in the past that I've, I've sort of only seen on television or or DVD has been quite elaborate staging, you know. And I expected a reasonable production, and it was nothing, hmm. no production whatsoever. And and also he's he's also known for you know making very intricate music and. Although the band was fantastic, they were sloppy as, like really? and I, yeah, but in a nice way. But they were just yeah. So it was very weird. A Perry Prince, who I know you're familiar with, uh, has been Todd's drummer for a while. Mm-hmm. Of course, the drummer from the Tubes, and he also, I think, plays in um, this week's version of Jefferson Starship in in San Francisco, where they're all from. So, and and again, you know, I've held him on such a pedestal, this guy, and. He was he was great, but just I, I came away because I, I actually went with my son, and, and we're both drummers, and we both you know jabbering on the way home in the car, saying, "Well, you know, he was good, but he didn't really blow us away," which was really, I guess, a bit disappointing in a way. But um, I know because I've heard so many recordings, plus uh, seen that tubes footage that I sent to you, yeah, and I just saw you know Prairie Prince and Sloppy. It's just not words he'd put in the same sentence. Yeah, I, the the first half of the gig, he spent most of that sort of making very rude gestures to the sound guy off the side of the stage. He, he wasn't happy, uh, and and I think that you know whether that's and by the end of the gig he was you know smiling and happy and 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 mucking around a bit. So maybe and it was their first gig, and I I, I don't know if they were under rehearsed or you know they they just didn't have it together, which. You know, it didn't really matter because they handed it up and, and Todd Rundgren was quite a, he's quite an entertaining character. But, yeah, I just, I just not what I expected, I guess. But um, without going into any, you know, waffling on for too long, the, the guy who stole the show for me mm. is, is the – Todd Rundgren's band in the, in the 70s was a band called Utopia. Yep. And, and the bass player is a dude called Kazim Sultan, who was, was the bass player on, on Bad Out of Hell. Okay, and and if you go through that sort of genre of music, ever since he is the session player of choice. He is probably one of the best bass players on the planet that no one's heard of. Right. But he, even if you look through your record collection, mate, he would be there somewhere. But he was just 
he was like the musical director. Like he was just so on the ball, and he he just his playing was awesome, and his harmonies. Todd Rundgren is known for his vocal work, but this guy kept Todd Rundgren. He, he he was singing behind him all the time and just held him up. He was you know phenomenal. So. Uh, Maybe Google or YouTube this guy, and he was worth a look if you haven't heard of him. But, um, Sultan Kazim Kazim Sultan S U L T A N. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but um, I guess the the surprise of me right, that I that I um that I text you about mid gig was um Davey Lane did the support from you and I. Right. So he uh, was I, fantastic. I, I found I found that a little bit surprising because I sort of thought that uh, you and I hadn't finished their um their Australian run with uh, Owly Daily and Hi-Fi Away yet, or, or maybe just they were in Adelaide or something like that and had the night off. Well, they were but... in Adelaide like the week before, like, and Nessie just sort of, yeah, flitting around the countryside picking up these gigs, but he was um, he was awesome to the point where, you know, I'm going to go and find his, his solo album. It was, it was great, really good. Oh wow! Well, that's yeah, that's uh, that's really nice to hear. Some where the um, the support act goes and yeah. blows away the headline act. I know you're a UMI fan as well. Huge. Well, um, I guess that's that's a nice little segue into uh, you know the last uh, couple of weeks gigs that I've been to, and um, uh, as I mentioned, UMI are going around uh, the country, and they've gone and uh, re-released their first three albums: Sound as Ever, Hi-Fi Way, and Hourly Daily. In expanded editions, presumably they've all been you know, remastered and retwigged and and done all sorts of uh, nice little soundy things to them. But um, the, the the package looks you know quite impressive. They've got uh, booklets with lots of photos and notes about the recordings and a whole disc full of B sides. You know, in this day and age of of uh, only iTunes downloads, does anyone remember what a B side was? But you know, B sides and live versions and I know I've got I've got these dubious feelings about sort of going out and getting those albums again because you know I've you know, nothing wrong with the copies that I've got it's just you know I don't have any of these uh, any of these B sides so I don't know um, Tim if you're listening and and you think that you know both of my listeners is a good investment then yeah send me a free copy so I can promote it to both the listeners um, anyway no they they did they did a great show they did four nights at the forum. Uh, in, here in Melbourne, which is a beautiful, beautiful theatre. I remember going to see lots of movies there. It was it was like a cinema when I was a kid. Is and, that in Flinders Street? Uh, that's no, no, that's in Flinders Street, corner of Flinders Street oh, no, and Russell yeah, Street. Yep. Um, and you know, it got this. Uh, you, you walk inside, it's got this sort of internal, beautiful Romanesque architecture. Um, and I think the last time I went there to see, I don't go to the to the forum that often. I think the last time I was there was in two thousand and four to see Los Lobos. Uh, oh, actually, no, sorry, and I went to see Billy Bragg and the blokes somewhere sometime after that. But I haven't gone there that often to that place as a venue. Um, but I don't know where I was standing was on that night behind the mixing desk. Uh, this is, I, I went on the first night of uh, their four-night Melbourne run. And uh, to be absolutely honest with you, I was not that impressed with the mix. Uh, I mean, look, you know, Tim Rogers' guitar came up nice and loud. Uh, and his vocals came up nice and loud, but you know, for me, the bass was not quite audible. Uh, there were a few moments with the cello, even in the quiet songs, um, that uh, it, could, it could hardly be heard. And really, the shock was that uh, 
uh, Rusty's drum kit. You know, you could barely hear the 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 snare drum. You know, the bass was going ka thump ka thump ka thump. But pretty unforgivable for a band like that. Where if you've heard the UMI records, you know, the the, the drum sound is absolutely cracking. Uh, but just it, it really was struggling to hear them. And this is from behind the mixing desk, where you thought you'd probably get the best the best possible sound. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that even um, uh, uh, good old Tim Rogers was not that satisfied with the sound they were getting that first night because you know, after they finished doing uh, Hourly Daily, they started, they went in reverse order. They did Hourly Daily, came on after Interval, did uh, High Fire Away. But when they, towards the end of uh, Hourly Daily, he said, well, we'll be back after Interval. Uh, anyone in the audience, if you've seen our drum kit, please send it back on stage. I was convinced that we had one up here. So I think that was a, a not so subtle message to um, to the sound engineer that night, but uh, who knows. Uh, but look, as, as far as their playing goes, it was just, it was something really, really special. You know? And um, Tim Rogers is a very, very funny guy, and the band played with a lot of passion. It was just, yeah, a really, really terrific gig. And a week ago, uh, um, so last Sunday night, I went to uh, another venue in Melbourne that I've only been to once. Uh, it's, uh, billboards in Russell Street. Uh, I know that if there's anyone who's listening to this show who are also fans of the uh, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema podcast, um, then they'll already know about my good time at this gig. And this was uh, to see the Italian prog rock band Goblin. Now, if you've watched any of the Dario Argento films of the 1970s, uh, then the name Goblin is no stranger to you. Uh, and I, mean, I know you're a big fan of um, of that sort of 70s prog rock movement. Uh, is Goblin a band that you're familiar with at all, Michael? Not at all. Right. No. Well, yeah. I think they, they... I know that they released some music that ha- that wasn't uh, soundtrack-based, but uh, you do well. At least go watch um, either a film called uh, uh, Deep Red or a film called Suspiria. They're the two that they're most famous for. I mean, they wrote for a bunch of other films as well, but um, they're... Uh, I think so. The story goes, and you know, Dario Argento, he'd already made a bit of a name for himself, making uh, these really great sort of uh, very scary thrillers in the early 70s, and he came around to make this film Deep Red, which, uh, depending on which side of the fence you sit on, uh, some people consider it his masterpiece, some people consider Suspiria his masterpiece, but I think they're both generally held in high regard. And uh, he went, I think he found Goblin at the um, Rome Roman Conservatorium of Music. They were like already an existing uh, jazz band, and he just liked their sound and said, right, I want you to go record for uh, for my movie. And really, they made probably the most memorable score I've ever heard for any type of movie ever. And I, I, there's a lot of great soundtracks that I like, but um, what they did for, for, the, for the Dario Argento films is just absolutely special. And they came here uh, end of last year, I think, uh, to play live with a screening of the film Suspiria. And unfortunately, I didn't get to that. But when I heard that they were coming back to do just sort of like a normal gig, I thought, right, I'm not going to let this chance go by. So uh, I went. And the, the place was absolutely packed. But, you know, you had heavy metal guys. You had um, older guys who, you know, just 
you know, probably like could remember when those films came out. You had uh, younger guys who'd only just sort of caught hold of the film on DVD, maybe in recent years. It was a real interesting mix. But um, yeah, they were very, very entertaining. And I, I, I can't remember the name of the drummer in Goblin, but uh, Michael, you would have just had your jaw on the floor. This guy, absolutely incredible, especially with his, um, with his double kick work. Uh, I, I don't think I'd seen a drummer that impressive since watching uh, uh, Virgil Donati in uh, the band Loose Change all of yeah. 30 years ago. And, and really, to compare some of the Virgil is you know, pretty incredible. But this guy is you know, as good, if not better, than, than uh, Virgil. So, well, she'll um, go a googling and find and have a look. Goblin, the, mm. the name. So, um, so yeah, that was that was a really special gig last week. All right. Well, um, I think what we might do at this time, I thought, we, well, actually, do you want to do a little bit of general Weddows talk, or, or go to a break and then come back to do some general Weddows talk? Your show, you choose. Oh, come on, you know, you're you're in the you're in the chair. You're a, you're a you've been on this show more times than anyone except for me. So, um, oh, well, let, let's keep going then. Well, well right. I, you did, I don't think you'd actually shared with me until you introduced the show that they were your favourite band. So, uh, well, there you go. Well, no, that so, puts me under pressure. <laughs> Look, if you think the album's shit, then you know, let's <laughs> talk about why you're wrong. You know, I'm I'm, I'm you know, pragmatic about this sort of thing. So, all right, well, let I'll, I'll throw it to you. Um, no pressure. Um, what are your memories of weddings, parties, anything, or, or is me sort of asking you to to um, talk about this sort of like your first real experience with? Well. Yeah, I, I, look, I remember them fine, and, and I remember liking them, but it took me a long time to, to for them to grow on me and to go back. Like, I, I guess, you know, I, I bought Scorn of the Women when it came out, mm-hmm. um, but I sort of lost track of the band after that until, you know, Father's Day obviously was a huge hit, and, oh, yeah. and suddenly everyone knew who they were. But between that, you know, I sort of, you know, I knew the tunes, and but I never really, you know... I, this album, for instance, The Big Don't Argue, I never sat down and really studied it and really listened to it. So it's been sort of interesting to do that. And okay. you know, I'm, I'm interested because the, the debut album was sort of, you know, written up and, and celebrated as, you know, the, the big debut album. This is so good. So I was sort of intrigued as to why you picked this one. Uh, look, you know, I, well, okay, so my background with Weddows, actually, The Big Don't Argue was my big epiphany with them. It wasn't the first time I'd heard them, though. And you'll be interested to know that the first time I ever heard them, they were as a support at Festival Hall for Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble and the Fabulous Thunderbirds, which is a really, really strange um, uh, triple bill. But apparently, I, I mean, look, I, I don't like you two. Um, I, I never have. And they came to Australia were doing their... Um, the, the tour behind Rattle and Hum, or well, the the Love Comes to Town tour, where they came with BB King, and apparently weddings parties anything were the support act for for that series of gigs. And you know, well, as I said, I don't like you two, but I respect the fact that Bono went and said that um, they were you know one of the greatest bands he'd ever heard, and you know he he said Michael Thomas writes really great crying your beer songs and uh, the sort of songs that you, you know, people should be standing around. The pub, you know, the piano or whatever, and singing along to, and I guess that's some sort of praise. But 
is is it fair to say that if we didn't know that weddings parties anything were Australian and and you took out the Australianism in some of the lyrics, they would sound very Irish if you didn't know. Well, so. well, look, you know what? It's interesting you mentioned that because um, uh, Eric Reanimator, and I'll, I'll mention what his segment is going to be coming up later. But um, I asked Eric Reanimator to you know, contribute uh, a segment for the show and you know, find an appropriate uh, album. To uh, to talk about, and you know, I, I said, look, you know, let me send you a copy of uh, the Big Don't Argue, which I did, and I, you know, sent him a note. Said, well, what did you think of the album? And he said, it sounds to me like uh, the Pogues, and I mean, really, I guess that that is completely what I think. You know, uh, the, the Big Don't Argue, in pretty much up to the Big Don't Argue, they maybe not identical in in um, sound to the Pogues, but there's there's definitely some similarities there. I, I think after the Big Don't Argue, when they moved on to... Well, actually, they had an EP called The Weddings Play uh, Sports and Falcons. Which I have a copy of, and I love that. Oh, it, it's, it's a great EP. Uh, but um, but the, the, the next real album that they did was uh, Difficult Loves. And from that point on, I think the Pogues comparison doesn't really hold up anymore. But it's those first three, uh, the scorn of the women, roaring days, and the big don't argue. So, uh, as I said, the first time I saw them was as a support for Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, yeah, this band's okay. But I was very much in a Stevie Ray Vaughan mood, so I wasn't paying that much attention to um, to the support act. When I really started to, you know, turn my head around to them, was you know reading in the street press or, or you know, any of the music publications at the time, the big don't argue had just come out and it, you know was praising it to the skies and I thought oh I've got to check this album out and I took it home, played the first side of the album and I remember the, well we'll go into the songs in particular uh, later on but the last song on side one is a tale they won't believe. And I'll go into more detail a little later on, but just the thing was, when I heard that song, I couldn't go to side two. I played that song. It's a seven-minute song, five times in a row, because I just couldn't believe that I'd heard anything as powerful as that. And when we get to talking about the album song by song, I'll say what it is that I love about it and how cinematic it is. Uh, but um, but yeah, I, I just... The production on this album is absolutely incredible. It sounds like uh, they've been they're in a church hall or somewhere like there, and the producer is Jim Dickinson, who um, <laughs> amazingly he's worked with uh, my heroes, Big Star. Um, he 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 was, but he was also an incredible piano player. He was a session musician. He's the guy who plays the piano on Wild Horses uh, by the Rolling Stones. He plays on Time Out of Mind by Bob Dylan. Um, he, he's got um, these two sons, uh, Luther and Cody Dickinson, who play in this fantastic band, the North Mississippi All-Stars, and I saw them play in Melbourne at the Prince of Wales Hotel, and those guys are sickeningly talented, all play multi-instruments. This will make you sick, Michael. Uh, the the drummer, uh, I think it's Luther, uh, I, know, I can't remember which one's which, which one's Cody. Awesome name for a drummer. Yeah, yeah. Lu- or, or maybe Cody. I don't remember which one's which. But anyway, he was so he had his drum kit, and there was a keyboard on the right hand side, so like where the where the ride symbol is. And I thought, what's he going? How's it, anyone going to get in there? What? And then I saw what he did on one song was he's playing drums with his left hand, and he's playing keyboards 
with his right hand. And I thought, you fucking show off. But it was, it was incredible. They played, they played great. So, you know, uh, Jim Dickinson, you know, a bit of a Memphis legend, and you know, his, his offspring, you know, equally as talented. He just worked wonders with the, with the sound of the Big Don't Argue. And that's why that album, uh, the sound, the, the storytelling on these songs, it just, it, it was like a real epiphany. And from that point on, I just knew I want to see this band over and over and over again. And uh, look, you know, I, I, as I said, saw them about 40, 45 times or something like that. And every experience, it, you know, I, I went with Joanne and we, I, I, you know, I mean, you know me, I am a slight of frame. But when you go to see weddings, parties, anything, you join in the mosh pit. That is it. That's that's just the rule. Slam dancing, moshing, that's what you do at a weddings, parties, anything gig. And no one's out to hurt anyway. You're all, it's like a brotherhood. It was just incredible gigs. But uh, so, so yeah, look, they, it, funny thing, those in recent weeks, as I like to do before a show, I immerse myself into the back catalogue of whatever artists we're going to talk about. And their last album, Riveresque, which I always thought, you know, it's a good album. It was their last studio album. And for a bunch of other reasons, I mean, it's a much gentler album. The production doesn't sound as live or as big as a big don't argue. But in some other ways, I think that's almost become my favorite of their albums. I mean, it's look, every album has got something to commend it. They're all great. Um, I guess Difficult Loves is the weakest. And that's ironic because that was the album that the general public sort of took their hearts to, you know, with Father's Day and Step In, Step Out. But Riveresque just has um, a lot more personal songwriting, I guess, on it. There's a song on it that uh, Mick Thomas originally wrote for, for Titters called For a Short Time. And they'd gone and recorded their version, but then the Weds took it back and recorded their version on on Riveresque. And I think the, uh, one of the last times I got to see them, Titters were the support act, and they came on and sang vocal harmonies for the Weds version. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not a dry eye in the house. It was you know, really, it's like having your heart pulled out of your chest. It's just such a gorgeous song. But uh, I'm, I'm getting teary-eyed just thinking about it. All right. What we'll do is um, we'll have a bit of a break, play a, play a cart, play an ad, and then uh, you and I will come back and we'll go talk about the big don't argue in, um, in some detail. So um, let's take a break. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to Michael over in Adelaide and Morris here in Melbourne. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 49, talking about the big don't argue by weddings, parties, anything. We'll be back shortly. Yes. Hey there, boys and girls. This is Maverick New York filmmaker Abel Ferrara, director of such films as Driller Killer, Miss 45, Bad Lieutenant, China Girl, Beer City, and Nine Lives of the Wet Pussy. I'm not out power drilling hoboes, smoking rock cocaine, hanging out with Bruce Willis. Uh, When I'm not doing that, I'm listening to The Milk Creeps. It's a podcast, whatever the fuck that is. They covered my movie Driller Killer on their very first episode, so they're obviously sick fucks. If you like that kind of thing, check them out on Facebook or iTunes. Yeah, they're called The Milk Creeps. All right. For more information, go to facebook.com slash millcreeps, millcreeps.lipson.com, or look up the Mill Creeps on iTunes or Stitcher. And we're back. Morris here. Michael there. And we're going to talk about Weddings, Parties, Anything, the Big Don't Argue album from 1989. But before I do, I've been negligent. I, 
uh, always leave this you know to an awkward position. I should make it like the first thing I say. Hello, you're listening to Love That Album, and we're going to be talking. And later on, Eric is going to be. <laughs> so, but I always seem to push it down the track. But at least I am going to make mention of it. So later on in the show, Eric Reanimator will be back with his segment, an album that I love, and he's going to be talking about uh, a band called Blood on the Saddle and their album Poison Love. And you know, he's got uh, some interesting stuff to say about them. They started out as purely a bit of a cowpunk band, but um, by the time they got to this album, Poison Love, I guess a little bit more poppy, but I won't take away his thunder. It's another interesting segment from Eric, as per usual, uh, but that'll be on later on in the show for the moment. Michael and I will be talking about the big don't argue. So um, what do you say? Let's uh, get into talking about uh, the first track on the album. This is um, a reworking of a folk Classic Australian folk song, The Streets of Four. This was your first time hearing this album. When you heard that first song, The Streets of Forbes, what did you think? And I yeah, immediately grabbed me and, and loved, as you said before, love the production. And you can, you know, and I totally agree, Jim Dickinson is a genius. Like, the sound is awesome and it just jumps out of the speakers at you. But it, initially it sort of took me back. You know, when I was a kid, I don't know about you, but you know, Australian folk music that especially, you know, dealt with colonial Australia back when we were kids was mm, just, mm. in my opinion, the most woeful drivel. It was just awful. And and to, this, this sort of brought me full circle. This, you know, I finally found a band that can sort of talk about those subjects, capture that sound, capture that, that sort of moment in time in a modern sort of context and not make me cringe. So, <laughs> and, I, and I mean that in a loving way. Do you know yeah, what yeah, I'm, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, look, you know, I guess he was trying to combine the best of what it was that he loved, Mick Thomas, that is, as a, as a ranger or, you know, as, as leader of the band. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, with, with that old style uh, folk sensibility. And I mean, certainly the Outlaw song is you know, a great American and English folk tradition. But, um, you know, he was here to take it back and give it some balls for, um, for Australian. Uh, and, and I guess it, having and it was weddings parties anything that set, sort of sent me off on a tangent to, to sort of take another look at bands like the Bushwhackers and, right. and I do quite like them now and I you know I would have <laughs> never given them a, a glance back so it's weird isn't it and and it sort of made me think of we spoke we did a show about this about stars a while back and yes yes and land land of fortune we spoke about was you know in a in a rock context sort of sung about colonial Australia in a very cool and, and you know, non-cringing sort of way. And, and you know, the widows do that as well, very well. I, I think, so like with stars, they were definitely sort of like working in what was 
for then a very contemporary style. You know, sort of they were, they were it was country rock, but certainly because of the high squeaky production values that they had. Uh, well, actually, I guess that was more on Paradise. It was maybe they threw some of those. They roughed it up a bit more for Land of Fortune than they did on the, on Paradise, but it was still it had for, for then a bit of a contemporary sound and feel. Whereas the Weds, they seemed to marry uh, rough roots rock with um, the old style folky feeling, and, and definitely do it uh, really great justice. But once again, I come back to Jim Dickinson um, taking some of the credit for that. I think. Absolutely, absolutely. I remember uh, there was a guy who I worked with um, uh, back in, oh, I don't know, uh, well, probably about the time when I first bought the album, and I, I knew he was a big folk music fan, and I you know, pushed the album on him and said, take this home, give it a listen, see what you think. And he um, he took it home, and he he said, um, he, he played it, I think his, his, uh, his in-laws were around, and he said, by Christ, you've gotten me in trouble. I said, how's that? He said, oh, my mother-in-law heard um, Streets of Forbes done the weddings parties anything away, and she said, that's sacrilege. You don't play that song like that. Um, and uh, I, I guess for someone who's a very folk purist, you know, I guess it would seem like a bit of a shock. But I've heard... Uh, have, have you heard an album by Andrew Pendlebury and Doug DeVries called Karate? Um, and they, they do... Um, you wouldn't exactly call it a, a traditional version, but it's certainly a lot more, uh, you know, this acoustic feel, uh, I, I guess leaning more towards a traditional style than what um, than what the Weds do. It's certainly uh, not rocky, it's just these two guitars. Maybe, in a way, strange way, a bit of a Spanish feel to it. I don't know, I wonder whether that would be considered sacrilege by uh, by uh, my friend's mother-in-law. Well, it got, it got the ticket of approval for Australian folk music for me from from the outset, anyway. Mm-hmm. For um, so, yeah, this is... Um, so, th- for those of you uh, outside of Australia who don't know who, uh, what this song is about or who it's about, this is um, a song about Ben Hall, uh, you know, the bush ranger of, of the time. Uh, was that... Was that... Um, I can't remember. Was it, was it about Ben Hall that they... I know it was Captain Miller, I think they spoke about on Ben Hall, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So well, there you go. Get my get my bush rangers confused. Um, but um, yeah. So this is this is a story of uh, Ben Hall and just uh, the end of the song. Why it's called Streets of Forbes? You know, he was captured by the police. Uh, they've gone and shot him multiple times, and they dragged him through the streets of Forbes to show uh, the locals. You know, you, you try anything. This is what you can expect. This is where you can you know expect to be end, ending up. Um, and so, yeah, I guess a lot of Australian uh, folk songs at the time were you know, very anti-British, very anti-colonialist, and this is certainly not doing them uh, any favours. But I just, I love how the uh, how the Weds do it. It's raw, it's gritty, it's aggressive, and Michael Thomas lets out. I think after Roger Daltrey's scream and won't get fooled again, this is probably the second greatest scream in a rock song I think I've ever heard. Where do you stand on that? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Just, it's absolutely. Just, and the other thing that I'll, I'll probably the other thing I'll probably keep um, referring to uh, around um, uh, the recording of this album, unlike the albums that came after this, the first three albums, Mark Wallace, uh, his uh, piano accordion was a very big part of uh, the wedding's sound. 
And he had a bit of a sense of humor about it because he had this great big sticker on his um, keyboard uh, at, at weddings gigs that said, play the accordion, go to prison. That's the penalty. So he certainly had a bit of a sense of humor about it. But I never thought I'd be able to say this on a show that um, Mark Wallace played the accordion and he rocks. It's about that time, you know, the mid-80s that I, you know, again, harking back to, to when we were kids, if you played the accordion, you know, when, when we went to school, you were the most uncool dude, full stop. <laughs> but, but in the mid-80s, it was suddenly cool. There was a lot of Zydeco music coming out of America. Right, um, right. And... Yeah, it, it was suddenly a cool thing to do, and Australian bands started to do it. Um, you know, I remember the first Black Sorrows album, um, right. Rock and Zydeco, yep. you know, full-on accordion, and it was the coolest thing. So it's it's weird how that you know these things sort of turn, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, look, and uh, that, I, I think that the arrangements of the group helped, because, you know, he probably could have played it if the arrangements hadn't been as interesting as they were it, it could have still it could have fallen flat on its face but you know he was a rock player who just happened to be playing the piano accordion but um this is this is uh not your um your uncle george on a sunday night you know playing a few tunes uh, uh whoops my knickers are showing sort of i don't know is that a real song i don't know but i just made that up uh but um should be yeah, absolutely. I think mate, you want. We should have a songwriting session. Whoops, my knickers are showing. I'm played on a piano accordion. Uh, but yeah, no. Anyway, he, he um, yeah, he, he made it rock with that piano accordion. It, it was, and this this album, with a couple of exceptions, really the 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 sound, the strongest sound of it comes from the piano accordion. It's less from the guitar. I mean, the guitar is there, and they had two great guitarists in the band. You had. Uh, uh, Mick Thomas on, you know, rhythm guitar. And for this one album only, you had Richard Bergman, who was originally, I think, out of the Sunny Boys, on uh, doing lead duties. This was his only album with the Weds. Uh, but um, really, the, the, the bulk of the sound came for, for, for the lead and melody lines and things came out of um, out of Mark Wallace's uh, piano accordion. But that's, uh, that's an awesome thing, really. All right, we'll uh, move on to the next song in the album. Uh, this is called The Ballad of Peggy and Cole. Peggy's been into town, been walking around, been drinking with the boys. Been spending some money on herself for a change, been making so much noise. But Carl just sits on a bus to Perth He got tears in his eyes Twenty years gone down the drain And now the world just passes by Turn up her hair, she's got a bought a new dress Don't she look aside She's been to a party to a restaurant Right, I'll make me cry. 
music of this song has always been one I've loved. As I said on before on the show, I love a descending chord pattern in a minor key. Um, and the song sounds heartbreaking. And yet, it's only like while I've sort of been listening again to the album for talking about the show, that the story didn't tend to make much sense. You've got like a couple of lines where you're talking about um, this guy who's doing it tough and then a couple of lines about this woman who's you know, having a great time on the town. Um, and then at the end of it, she realizes that she loves this guy who's doing a hard time and she comes back home to him. And yeah, I guess it doesn't really make much sense, but sometimes I guess you don't really have to um, worry terribly. It, it, it's, it, maybe it's more about the feel, but the melody on this is just... It's heartbreaking. So, you know, he could be singing about drying the dishes or something like that. But this is, uh, uh, I, I don't know, I, I guess I would like to, have, I guess it's more like a character study than, uh, than a narrative. And the narrative is such a, normally a strong part of Nick Thomas's lyrics. Yeah, true, I agree with it. But I, I do sort of like the, the lyrics in this. It's, I, I found it sort of interesting without, I guess some of his other lyrics are, are very cinematic and, you know, very detailed in, in the storytelling, and this is is a bit more abstract, maybe which I which I like. But mm. you know, the, for me too, the the piano accordion stands out in this one, just just soars above everything else. I, I think Mark Wallace actually got a co-write uh, for this song because his um, his melody was that distinctive, especially like how they opened the song, and um, yeah, definitely he. Uh, I think he got the co-write because of that. But yeah, no, it's. Uh, it's definitely it's it's a lot of it's a lot of fun uh, listening to this one, and yet it, it, it's fun and yet melancholy all at once. Um, uh, yeah, just I don't know. I don't, I don't really know that I've got that much more to say about this one. It's uh, it's unusual for me normally I crap on, and I know a few other songs I'm going to be crapping on, but but certainly um, yeah. Look, it, it is a beautiful song. It is a beautiful song. We'll leave it at that one. Uh, let's go on to the next song in the album. This is called Knockbacks in Halifax. <laughs> It's Saturday night in Halifax. The kids are out there dancing. It's the same old beat. It's all over the world. And in her eyes, I could have sworn I saw the northern lights. But it was a light flashing from the disco silver ball. Come 10,000 miles to be here I can't say that I'm not glad I won't say that it's the best old time That I have ever had Sure I'd like to dance my girl But hey not to that song For I hated it in Sydney I despised it in Geelong And it's Saturday night Might be my imagination But I think that the songs from The Big Don't Argue Were probably filled with more live favourites Than just about any other album And this song was one of the songs that I think the crowd one of three songs from this album that the crowd love above everything else and certainly if you've heard their live album called They Were Better Live or had actually seen them live you know that they play this song at twice the speed and it's not a slow song uh, to begin with um, this is go on and as I said mate the, you know the, the cinematic qualities about Mick Thomas for me this is a very cinematic song it, it paints a real picture and really takes you it's, look, it's, a, it's a funny song you know he um, the, the, the stories that he's t- it's, it's less of a story with a beginning middle and end but it's you know it's this guy describing uh, a night out he's an Australian up in he's found himself in uh, uh, in Canada He's in Halifax. Uh, he's, I think he's trying to pick up women at some shitty disco 
uh, or maybe he's in a pub that's having disco night out there in Halifax and he's wondering what the hell he's doing there. They, they're playing Whitney Houston songs and he wasn't going to dance to Whitney Houston's song at a crappy nightclub in Geelong. He certainly wasn't going to do it in uh, on the other side of the world. But um, it, it, it's, yeah. You know, I do like playing name check it, it is. I, I mean, look, that's that's the other thing. We were talking on the last show about uh, Paul Kelly, and uh, you know, Paul Kelly liked to uh, name check uh, places. You know, he he loved you know, loves name checking Melbourne. Uh, unfortunately for your good self, he uh, name checks Adelaide, but not in a in a not so nice way. For the wrong reason. <laughs> it, it's a wonder he's ever been allowed back. Uh, what, is it, what is it about Adelaide? I mean, you know, stars didn't write flattering stuff about Adelaide. Paul Kelly doesn't. Why do you still welcome these guys to your hearts? It's, it's, it, musically, Adelaide is a very weird place. It's because it's not a big population. And, yeah, I've gone to gigs in Melbourne and Sydney where, you know, the crowd's gone nuts and, and you go to the same gig in Adelaide and it's very downbeat. It's, yeah, it's very weird. It's a, yeah, very strange in that way. And I think that's... That, you know, artists like that, that that sort of haven't felt the support from the locals, and it's yeah, you know, I've, stars in particular really, you know, really stuck with me. That I've you know, one of my favourite bands ever. That just you know, I don't think we we really appreciated here how damn good they were. So so you'd say that audiences in Adelaide are far more reserved than anywhere else that you've been around Australia. Yeah, I really think so. Yeah, yeah. That's um, it's strange. Well, there there you go, Adelaide. You get what you. You get what you pay for. You want people to write shitty. You want people to write lyrics about about your town in a not so flattering way. Then um, at least yeah. you can drive to the gig and park out the front. Oh, go on, put a knife in my heart. Um, so yeah, anyway, so this song "Knockbacks in Halifax." Uh, once again, Mark Wallace carries the melodies and and does a great solo on the squeeze box. Um, I I love the uh, the vocal harmonies in this. This um, there's quite a few um, moments of uh, vocal harmony greatness over uh, the weddings, parties, anything repertoire, but this was a song that um, had the audience singing harmonies along with them, because it's it's not, you know, refined choir boy type harmonies or perfect 2013 a cappella harmonies. We're talking um, uh, just, you know, arm round the shoulder, being with your mate and singing at the top of your voice, and if you harmonise well, all the better, but you don't Really give too much of a fuck about whether it's, but it's just, it so works. It's very blokey harmonies, if that makes any sense. Um, and you, and you get great lyrics like, it's Saturday night in Halifax, the kids are out there dancing, it's the same old beat that's all over the world. And in her eyes, I could have sworn I saw the northern lights, but is it, but it was the lights flashing from the disco silver ball. It, it's funny. It, it's a, it's a funny song. And, you know, but the end of the night, um, you know, the, the girl who he's got his heart set on, you know, she she drinks his beers and goes off with the bloke from Montreal instead and all he gets is a is a is a kiss on the cheek. It's you know, heartbreaking and funny all at once. I, I just yeah, great storytelling. Um and uh yeah, uh, Mick Thomas yeah, he he cuts the goods here on, on uh, this song, as he does really on most of these songs. Any other thoughts? No, I guess the only other thing, you know, I, as I said before, the, the cinematic qualities of this, I, I'm really surprised some B-grade Australian movie maker didn't put a script around this. And, it, you, know, you think of all those Australian movies from the 70s and yeah. early 80s, this is this is so much like, you know, puberty blues and all those lame 
Right. I reckon certainly a good short film would be uh, something that Tropfest should, um, something that should be, uh, if you're out there listening and you're a potential short filmmaker, you do well to listen to this song. I reckon you could come up with a great little um, uh, yeah. seven-minute film behind this for sure. Um, all right, let's go to the uh, the next song on the album. This is called Never Again, Albion Tuesday Night. time that I saw you Through eyes both drunk and red I recall the drunken So after three frantic songs to start off the album, this is the first point in the album where the guys just they get a little bit more laid back, a little bit gentler musically um, but uh, it's a waltz and as I've said maybe once or ten thousand times on this show, it's the saddest of all time signatures I think I might even have to say that somewhere else again on, on this album. Um, yes, actually, the last track on the album, another waltz. Uh, as per the norm on this album, you know, once again, Mark Wallace carrying the melody to the, the squeeze box, but also great use from the mandolin. I'm not sure whether it's uh, Richard Burden or Nick Thomas. Um, and I don't know where you stand, but I've always had a fondness for the mandolin. Absolutely, I'm a sucker for mandolin, and it works so well. And it's, for me... It makes this tune sort of reminds me of, of the band, or you know, in, it, it puts puts the weddings parties in that category. That they, you know, fantastic the, call. I yeah, guess yeah. the arrangement. Yeah, yeah. The, but also with this one, again, they're tackling a you know what is it at the basis of a, an old traditional Australian folk song, which you know, I, I guess. You know, I originally thought, well, that's a brave thing to do, but in the context of weddings parties, it was probably not. But, you know, in the context of what rock and roll was doing in Australia at that time, these guys were really, you know, really started... Because Paul Kelly, you know, really wasn't doing that sort of thing back then. I think Paul Kelly, these days, is very much along... You know, I can hear a lot of Paul Kelly now in songs like this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I guess, like, his latest album, Spring and... Spring and Fall is is um, a more gentle album than he's done in a while. Like he was doing, I think, uh, Stolen Apples. He was going for the big rock stadium sound on a lot of those songs. But um, yeah, I, I can I can sort of see what you say where um, he's, he's sort of uh, returning to a gentler sound. And it, yeah, songs like this. Like also, my first impression of this song was I thought you know Springsteen could have done this song. Just... Oh really? Yeah, yeah. That's a good call. I hadn't thought of that. Just how it jumped out of me. It's, it's. I guess it's got that sort of Springsteen storytelling sort of feel of it. But it, you mentioned the band a couple of minutes ago, and now that I'm thinking, I, I've just now got this picture of Levon Helm, the the late lamented Levon Helm, uh, strumming out on the band uh, on the mandolin on uh, on this song. That would have been that would have been really nice, and I could hear his voice doing it. It's a, it's a shame no one sort of submitted uh, these songs to. Um, well, you know, what was the revived, uh, was it late 80s version yeah, of, yeah. of the band to do? I actually sat down and watched The Last Waltz again uh, about 
two or three weeks ago and absolutely loved it. It's um, a great rock yeah. film, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah forgot, forgot, you know, what all of those guys are just awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so, once again, about, about this song, you know, this is um, a bit of a, a bit of a heartbreak, I guess. Um, the idea behind this song, I think, was pursued again a few albums later on the song I mentioned earlier on for a short time. Uh, both songs are about regrets for not acting on either helping someone, which is you know, like in this song, or getting to know someone, which was what happened in for a short time. They're both laments, uh, and in, you know, in both songs, the, the moment to act is gone. The other person disappears, never to be seen again, leaving you know, the, the narrator, the singer of the song, with you know, heavy regret or guilt. Um, he sings in this one, I recall the first time that I saw you through eyes both drunk and red. I recall the drunken conversation and nearly every word you said. It was too easy to let it happen for me to leave and walk away, but now I hear that you're slipping downwards. There are words I cannot say. Uh, this first verse, it sets it all up. Both the narrator uh, and friend, are, you know, they're in a bad way through alcohol. Um, I reckon drugs are definitely implied there as well. Uh, he leaves when it's getting all too difficult, but his friend's now gone to shit and he's left with, he's left with the guilt. Even when he sings in the chorus, nothing I did for you helped in the least. That sounds to me like the narrator's trying to convince himself that he's not to blame for his friend's downward spiral, but I don't think, you know, he's, he even buys that. I don't think he believes it. Um, so it, it, it's interesting, you know, I mentioned about, you know, for, for a short time, you know, coming later on this other song of regret, and there are songs, there are themes that Mick Thomas keeps returning to. Uh, certainly, I, I've often thought, you know, not not so much this is a thing, but I reckon if you were to count, if you were to if you were to get um, a, a dollar for every time that Mick Thomas mentions the word beer in a wedding party's anything song, I reckon you'd be ending up pretty drunk by the end of the night. <laughs> he liked his beer, but he certainly he. he mentions quite a um there, there are a number of themes which he uh, keeps returning to and this one about regret is uh is one of those songs and uh, i guess a cry in your beer song there we go there's the beer again uh so i mean how did how did this song speak to you in terms of like you know after having heard this sort of like aggressive full-on oral assault on the first three numbers you know were you were you prepared that they were going to do something gently were you thinking it was going to be like a full-on uh, aggressive sort of album where did this stand with you? I think I was more, I was more taken aback was how aggressive it was to start off with. I kept waiting for, you know, where's the ballad coming? What's, where's, <laughs> and and when it finally gets you, it's like, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> and um, well, let's talk about the next song because it's almost like, uh, it's almost like Mick and the boys thought, right, okay, well we've done the ballad now, let's go back to putting our um our uh, testicles on because, uh, well, what do they do? They go into um, the song that I mentioned before that I played five times in a row the first time I heard it. Here's A Tale They Won't Believe. Macquarie Harbour, it was in the pouring rain None of us quite sure if we would see England again As some fool muttered death on liberty There were six of us together, a jolly hungry crew 
As the days went by, you know our hunger quickly grew. Some fool muttered death or liberty. So that night we made fires out of twigs and out of bark. And our stomachs there rumbling all through the night so dark. Wondering, trying to keep ourselves alive. And when the sun it rose next morning, well, at six and ten to five. And I said, right, this summer one, don't you frown, shoot the meat and hold it down. It's a tale they won't believe. When I get down a whole bar sound. We're nervous, and I tell you that's a fact. But you should have seen the bastard who was carrying the axe. He was a sick man, he had murder in his heart. And then we reached the Franklin River, and it took two days to cross. We were wet and almost starving, and for food we're at a loss. We were hungry men with murder on our minds. So that night we made fires out of twigs and out of bark. And our stomachs, they were rumbling all through the night so dark And they were making noises the death could not ignore And when the sun came up next morning Well, at five, the time to four And I said, run, there's another one, don't you frown To the meat and hold it down It's a tale they won't believe When I get down to Hobart Town Again, totally agree. This is a song that jumped out at me, and and I did listen to it over and over again. And I, it's still my favourite song on the album. Probably one of my favourite Wednesday Parties Evening songs. It's, again, you know, I spoke about before how Wednesday Parties Evening took things that I that I cringed at when I was a kid. The the, the accordion and mm-hmm. and you know folk music about colonial Australia, but also, I don't know about you, but in school, Australian history was the most dull, boring stuff. It's unfortunately true, yeah. Yeah, but it's, when you actually, in a context like this, where it's really interesting, and it makes, you know, the the story of this is a fascinating story of of some convicts in Tasmania, and it it actually made me go and research the story. Like, I love that about a song, that it can can actually, you know, make your ears prick up. So I want to know more about that, where reading out of a history book at school was just, you know, dulls me. Well, for for those of you out there who don't know the story of this song, it's uh, about six convicts who... um, who escape from uh, Macquarie Harbour and they're making their way uh, to, to Hobart. And so, I mean, really, you can picture this is... I mean, I think it's Mick Thomas's original song, but he must have heard uh, this as, you know, written as a murder ballad or as a, or as a traditional folk song to, to, to base his version on. Um, so these six convicts escape and one of them has an axe and is a psychotic bastard, and I think that's in Thomas's own words. And one, each verse by verse, it's not getting any Verse by verse, uh, the bastard with the axe hacks up another member of the crew, which they all eat because none of, they don't have any food. They, they just escape there in the pouring rain, and um, they don't know where they're going to end up. They don't know if they're going to get caught, but survival is paramount in uh, the Tasmanian bush. And uh, if any of you out there have seen the film with Willem Dafoe uh, set in Tasmania, The Hunter, so you know about some of that terrain. Uh, and it's just... so you know, It's the first time you hear this, you know, that word cinematic comes back because he's telling this story and you think, oh God, 
what's going to happen next. And the structure of the song is you're never in any doubt as to what's going to happen next. He's going to cut up another uh, member of this, you know, this this crew. But what really happens, the narrator of the song, his fate is never in doubt because, well, he's not the bastard with the axe. And if he's to tell the story, you know, he's going to be cutting the guy with the axe. So I guess it's no surprise, and yet it's the mark of great storytelling that you're still kept on the edge of your seat wondering, you know, how things are going to how things are going to play out. And this song was full on aggressive. Uh, this was this is the big song that people slam danced to and everyone sang at the top of their lungs to. And it's a song about murder and cannibalism. But, you know, that, that was a big thing in uh, 80s Australian pub rock. As you know, and, and you, you mentioned before about, you know, <laughs> what, what, what we're listening to in, in Australia. I mean, look, I, I haven't sort of gone through my memory and I can't remember who were the other bands in 1989 what were we listening to in Australia in Australian rock in 1989 but I can tell you probably without sort of like being specific it, it, we're listening to probably a lot of stuff with um, uh, sampled sampled drums those horrible lean drums the overproduction that plagued I guess a lot of uh, Australian recordings of the time at least mainstream Australian pop of the time so you know to hear something like this that sounded like this was really refreshing and exciting yeah and i think the the book this is based on is called the fatal shore that's right yes that and oh, I, I haven't come across that no no have you ever read that i have but I, a long long time and and i actually went and found the book when the album came out mm. but i i can't for the life of me find it i when when i knew i was going to talk to you about it i went through my library and thought i've got it somewhere but i can't find it and i would love to um to dig it up and, and get a copy, and surely it's around somewhere because it's it was quite a um, you know it's quite a historical sort of piece of fiction. Well, not sorry, well, non-fiction. Australian history. It's, it's got to be out there somewhere. Somewhere go go digging in some bookshop. Is there still bookshops in there? Um, you, you know what? There actually are, and it, it's it's basically the big bookshops that have fallen by the wayside, not the. Um, not the, uh, uh, the the little, the individual, uh, they're now called boutique ones, but, you know, the, the independent ones, you know, people actually still like going in and uh, finding their way around a, a, a shop where it's got floor-to-ceiling books. There's a bookshop just, you know, four or five kilometres down the road from me where, you know, I don't know if you saw the photo, I put it up on Facebook, but Max and I uh, bumped it's into Nick Cave, you know, and that was in this newly opened bookshop just down the road in Nelson Week. Yeah, um, a lot of you know, a lot of my friends are, um, you know, when we'll, we'll pull out the uh, the iPad and the Kindle and all this. I, I still have this, um, you know, I enjoy this old-fashioned thing called the book. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I still see a few people on the, on the train and the way to work. They're still reading this old-fashioned thing called the book. But um, we, we we all like we all like uh, you know the written word. It's just you know, how we like it. But anyway, so um, so back to this story. Actually, you know what? I'm going to say it's cinematic, but I think about two, three years ago, there was a film made covering this story called Van Diemen's Land. Um, I never saw it, and from all accounts, it wasn't as great as you know, the actual story would have lent itself to, so I don't know, maybe I should reserve judgment until I actually get to see it, but um, I don't know, I think if it's not that great, then that's a real shame, because you know they had a, they had a fantastic story there just waiting to be told well, but um, anyway, so um, yeah, now look, just the thing is, you know, Mick 
Thomas uses the storytelling method of every verse. You know how it's going to end because he's got a... The, the last line is something like, the six had turned to five, the five had turned to four, the four had turned to three. Uh, so you know exactly structure-wise where it's going to go. Uh, where it's going to go. <laughs> where it's going to go. And I think probably the only awkward lyrical moment is where you know the narrator of the story is saying how he has to do away with the bastard who was holding the axe had gone and chopped everyone else up. And he says, uh, uh, he grabbed the axe and he said, I didn't exactly enjoy it. It wasn't exactly fun. But when the two woke up next morning, well, the two had turned to one. And uh, really, a, a bush murder ballad, cannibalism, it wasn't exactly fun. I, I, I think uh, Mr. Thomas, uh, I think he might have struggled for a while with that lyric and he thought in the end, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to have to go with it because I just want to put this song out. Finish, uh, finish the story. Yeah, finish the story. Uh, but you know, despite that one little thing, um, it, it's it's a gritty tale, and you know the pleasure was all the audiences every time they played. I guess it was like you know, weddings parties, anything equivalent of uh, a stairway to heaven. They couldn't mm. play a night without doing that song. That was the one that their fans really wanted to hear, probably above it all else. And I guess if you were to ask the fans you know, to write out a set list, you know, there'd be many and varied songs that they would choose, but uh, a tale they won't believe was just something else. Uh, uh, Alright, let's go on to the next song. Now, this song didn't appear on the vinyl version. This is only on the CD version. Remember back in the days when we um, had to use bonus tracks on the CD to uh, enhance, to get people to uh, to uh, cough up the extra money rather than buying the vinyl. Now it's the other way around. You know, we're saying, oh, we'll release the vinyl to get you to spend $40 on a new record um, rather than buying the CD or buying the MP3 version. So how, uh, things have changed. But this was the, the bonus song on the CD, uh, a song called House of Ghosts. She goes down alley, sad to table. Not sure how many places Not sure who it's for Not sad or sally Always bright and able But not sure of the faces Coming through the door There was Jenny and Terry and Arthur and Lee Talking and fighting and starting I confess that when I first heard the album, this always did strike me as maybe the weakest, maybe the, the throwaway song on the album. But I guess now I'm seeing it a little bit differently, and I'm wondering, I'll give you my impression of it, see where you stand on this. I mean, I've got a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old, but I'm sort of thinking towards the future. And this song, House of Ghosts, is you know, about... So, uh, about a woman who finds that you know probably empty nest syndrome. We never sort of like know where her husband is, but she's sort of recalling. You know, she, she's now you know just she, she's only got the television and the radio to keep her company, and she mentions by name you know the John Laws show. You know, I like those little cultural references. You know, uh, she's got nothing to do but read the Herald and watch the John Laws show and drink lanchu tea. 
uh, while remembering all the things that you know her son had used to say about not letting the dog inside, and now it's just a house of ghosts. And you're you're having um, well, uh, your daughter's regular, I guess, your, your son too. I mean, do, does your house feel like a house of ghosts? What like it really? Well, there you go. I mean, I listen to this now, and I sort of think, oh, I don't want my kids to move home. I mean, they're not. It's not anywhere around the corner, but. You know, it's inevitable, and now this song sort of thinking about that. It sort of speaks to me a little bit, a little bit more. And I, I don't find it a weak song anymore at all. I, I really like it now. But for a long time, I just sort of thought oh, it's a bit of a throwaway bonus song. I don't really quite like it. Yeah, it's got a nice melancholy about it. I guess the other thing that, that I like, I really like about Mick Thomas's songwriting, is he can sort of take you to, uh, you know, Australian suburbia. Yes, and and in a you know a sort of romantic way, and and the only thing I can think of to compare it to is is the old sort of um, Barry Humphrey's monologue where you know to talk about suburban Australia, and and I will immediately think of the way my mother and my grandmother would talk, and and some of you know some of the the things he'd talk about, it and just the way that he spoke, you know, sort of takes me back. But again. The way Mick Thomas writes, and he's you know because he's our age, the the way he writes about suburbia takes me back to you know being a kid and and, and some of those things that he's talking about, you know I guess you know growing up in the sixties in Australia. He he certainly writes about it with a lot of affection. I've mentioned on the show a number of times before that I, I look I don't know I, I look on it with both a bit of annoyance, but. I see sometimes what they're getting at, but you sometimes get some songwriters who write about their time growing up, or they or they write with disdain about life in the suburbs. So, for instance, you know, a couple of shows back, I was talking with my mate Julian um, about uh, the monkeys, and one of the songs that we spoke about was Pleasant Valley, Pleasant Valley Sunday, and that was talking about you know people whose most exciting thing is standing around the barbecue and. Uh, having bought a new apron and talking with the neighbour about you know, the mortgage and that sort of stuff. So it, look, it looks on suburbia with some level of disdain. And if you watch um, uh, the film clip of uh, Ben Fold's song, Rock in the Suburbs, uh, it brings home the lyric there that you know they're sort of having a bit of a go at the suburbs. And he's another guy who wrote about Adelaide. Ben Folds, he, he was an Adelaide mm-hmm. resident. Yeah. Um, but uh, you don't get that. Uh, so much in the songwriting of uh, Paul Kelly or Mick Thomas. They're very much family guys who, you know, respect the stories that um, their fathers and mothers and you know, grandparents, presumably, and cousins went and told them. Uh, and, you know, and they, they take a lot of pleasure out of uh, their growing up years. So to write with disdain about suburbia, I don't know, maybe, maybe tales of Australian suburbia are more interesting. In uh, tales of British or or American suburbia, I don't know, but um, well, maybe we can just relate to it more. Like, yeah, I, I just you know I just find that yeah this this tune in particular just sort of you know took me back to being a kid with a corner store and you know just riding your bike around and that sort of stuff. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, we we certainly look on look on that with a, a lot of affection. So yeah, it's, it's nice to see uh, Mickey T doing that. But, but really, when you think about it, there's not a lot of Australian songwriters. That can do that. Paul Kelly does do, and but yeah, very few. I'd have to. Uh, I'm going to have to take up that challenge. I'm going to go back through the uh, through the songwriting archives and see whether um, 
whether that whether that holds true because you know there's there's got to be others. There's got to be others. But you know a lot of, a lot of people don't do it in. You know, a lot of people sort of try and over romanticize it or, or whatever. But right. it's you know they've. You know what I'm saying? It's it's very sort of you know how they sort of tell it how it was. And, well, but it, it's still I guess it's again because it's our childhood. It's sort of you know. <laughs> It well, sort you, of brings like, back memories for us. I don't well, know, but sort you, of how does that affect on on someone from overseas? Maybe. Well, you, you raise a really good point there because I, I guess you know there I've been saying about how a lot of songwriters will write with disdain about life in the suburbs and uh, aspire for what they call or what they think is something better. But I, I guess the other end of the spectrum, you've gone and said that you know it's very easy for you know, to to over romanticise those those early days too. So. Uh, certainly, you know, Mickey T and and um, Paul Kelly, I, I don't think you could accuse them of uh, of either. Certainly not over-romanticizing it, but they, they just sort of, you know, say, look, you know, here's this experience and there's something really quite nice about it. All right. Um, all right, let's, um, let's move on to uh, the next song on the album. This would have been the opener for uh, side two of the vinyl. And it's a it's a song I've got a little, uh, well more than a little bit of affection for. I'll tell you why in a minute. This is called "Hug My Back." Would you hug my back to keep me warm while the night goes creeping? As if there were a ghostly form through our window peeping. The sweat comes trickling down my back. Trying to hold me close and whisper sweet and tell me I'm not dying. To hug my back to keep me warm. Oh, the night's so balmy as if there were a dreadful storm. And I'm the one needs calm. And will you tell me why? It's a really beautiful little traditional sounding melody here, and I'd be very surprised if this wasn't directly lifted from some traditional Australian folk song um, and you know, I've been speaking before about how uh, Mark Wallace's piano accordion has been carrying a lot of these songs and certainly he's a strong part of this but for, the, for a good chunk of this the acoustic guitar and mandolin uh, work really well side by side on this it's, a, it's just a beautiful little love song and why I have a lot of affection for this is because when I got married uh, back in, oh, well, that many years ago, uh, my, a very, very good friend of ours uh, back then, Alison Foreman, uh, she, you know, originally a Sydney sider, came down to Melbourne for the wedding, and you know, she's a fantastic violinist. So um, uh, at the wedding, uh, my, you know, I, I got together a few guys and we played as a band, but I asked Alison to join me to do this song in dedication to Joanne. So I played the guitar and she played um, played the violin and they said, have you heard this song? She said, never heard it, play it for me once and she just absolutely nailed it. So I got a lot of affection for this song, you know, besides having heard it on the record, but you know, this is something I can relate to, you know, playing it at my own wedding back in the I'm not going to mention it yet. Um, but yeah, look, it, it really does have... As long as you remember exactly what day it... Oh yeah. Oh look, you know, I'm... I guess I'm something of the girl in our relationship because I remember those sorts of dates and Joanne really does. But she says, well, that's because you're the mathematician and you know, I'm not. Uh, okay, whatever. Whatever floats I, your I, head. I, 
I own a diary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that works too. It's interesting you, you say that because this, it, exactly what you said is what I thought when I first heard this song. It's, it's not an old Australian, you know, traditional folk song, but it should be. Yes, very much. I was, I was just, just going to say you know, that it sounds like, um, it really, out of anything on the album, it probably sounds the closest to a traditional Australian folk song. But it's got sort of a, a sea shanty sort of feel about it, which which a lot yeah. of weddings parties, anything stuff, sort of has a bit of that. And I, again, would normally make me cringe and want to stick my head in the oven. But there's something <laughs> they, you know, they they get away with it, and I'm it annoys me that I let them get away with it. But I, you know, <laughs> never would I put on a sea shanty. But you know, there's there's a lot of those elements in there. I think uh, it just like yeah, I, Thomas can get away with it. Look, the albums the albums are great, but I think you know if you would have been to see them live, even even once, uh, then you you would have thought, I don't care what you do from here on in on your CDs, I will see you every time you're in my neck of the woods because they were an exciting band live, and they were a funny band live as well. Um, and uh, really, uh, Mick Thomas loved to tell stories. We haven't actually mentioned anything about the rhythm section yet at the time of. Uh, this album's release, uh, they had um, uh, Pete Lawler on bass, who actually sort of after weddings, after he left weddings parties, anything, went on to start uh, a, a dub band, sort of like an electronic dub band called uh, something Baldheads, the Baldheads or something like that, and he became he, he called himself Doctor Pump. Um, uh, really, it was as far removed from weddings parties as anything I'd ever heard. Although he actually did do one album in his own name that was, I guess, a, you know, not quite Weddings Parties anything, but it was more like a conventional rock album. That was uh, that was quite a good album. I can't, the name which escapes me for the moment. Uh, but yeah, so Pete Lawler on um, on the bass, and at the time, who was on for another couple of albums on the drums, was a guy called Marcus Schindler. Uh, before, after he left, there was uh, Michael Barclay, ex-Paul uh, Kelly drummer, uh, who, who joined and the, the two are very different in their styles. I think Marcus Schindler was more of a, uh, a technical drummer than uh, than Michael Barclay. Both worked absolutely well in the context, but um, uh, Marcus Schindler was you know very big on the, on the drum rolls and um, it was, it, I guess something of a technical drummer. But yeah, they they work really really well uh, together on on this album, but uh, there's not much actually call for a rhythm section on this song. By the end of the song, uh, Marcus is uh, just sort of playing like a, a big bass drum, and I'm convinced it's probably uh, Pete Lawler playing the mandolin. Uh, no no bass on this. And it really, at the end, yeah, the sea shanty thing is completely accurate. Um, and you can just imagine you know, the, the people doing a jig to this. In fact, I think a lot of us at the Central Club in Richmond did do a jig. Uh, to, to this song, it's that type of song. Pate's an ugly mental picture. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and it's not leaving your head. Indeed. All right, let's um, let's go on to the next song. And um, actually, there's well, I'll tell an interesting story about this one. This is called "The Wind and Rain." He walks down through a lonely town. Everywhere, ah, the wind and the rain. 
So back in the days when we still bought VHS videotapes, uh, the weddings put out uh, a tape, I can't remember what they called it, but it was, it was a mixture, it was like, you, you spoke about the last waltz, this is, well, they weren't anywhere near quitting, but it sort of reminds me a bit of the last waltz, because, you know, it had live footage of them at the Central Club from one uh, Christmas, I said Christmas shows, mixed with interviews with the band and Mickey T just showing the camera crew around Richmond and various members of the band showing them around their place and all these sorts of things and Pete Lawler the bass player at the time lived I think upstairs at the Central Club in Richmond and there's this one scene where we're in the camera crew are in his room and he and Mick Thomas play like it's a different slightly different lyric but it's the same melody of The Wind and the Rain and they're playing sort of more traditional mandolin guitar version of the song. Very different from this. So, yeah, I guess in the best folk tradition, it was something to sort of like, you know, take a song, take a lyric, or in the best blues tradition as well, I guess, where you take a, an original song and then you change the words or you change the feel of the melody a little bit. And I guess in that way, you know, weddings, parties, anything were great inheritors of the blues tradition. They took something and, and did something a little bit different but they played a traditional version and then what we have here on the record though is a more rocky sort of version and, and changed lyrics and you know, even referring to Ligon Street here in Melbourne which I'm pretty sure is not mentioned in the traditional version <laughs> but again this is um, a song that really jumped out at me I love you know this is probably my second favourite song and I, and I remember I don't know about Melbourne but this got played a reasonable amount on the radio Oh really? Okay, I, I don't think I remember hearing that on the radio. But so, so what they got played on like a triple N or something. And I vaguely, recall, I, yeah, I vaguely recall it being a single. I could be wrong. Oh well, no, I might have to look that up. But, I, I'm, um, I'm not a, yeah, it, it's, it it's, certainly sounds like it's the sort of song. That's why that I remember. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and it, and that's I guess what stands out to me that I that I did hear it a bit more. But it's again we spoke about it before. It's it's got a a Paul Kelly feel for me that I can see this being in Paul Kelly's repertoire now not then but you know this is you know I wonder how much he was listening to weddings parties anything during the what? you know when he was making those edits well actually it's funny you should mention that we haven't I haven't spoken about this yet but they did actually have a collaboration uh, Mick Thomas and Paul Kelly wrote a song called Laughing Boy which appears on their second album Roaring Days and in their final set of gigs at the Central Club before splitting up. I mean, they've had reunions. Apparently, now they've got gosh, no more reunions. Um, wait and see. Uh, but um, during that final set of gigs before the initial split, uh, Paul Kelly uh, actually came on stage to do the song Laughing Boy with them. You usually went to a wedding party's anything gig. Like they do like that, you know, eight or nine Central Club gigs every Christmas. And you picked the nights that you went based on who the support acts were going to be. I mean, because you, you knew every night weddings were going to put on a great set. But, you know, if you wanted to go see Even or you wanted to see the Titters or you know, any of those bands, um, and one night, I mean, Paul Kelly could have filled in any 
concert hall that he wanted to, but you know he came to the Central Club and played with uh, with the Wed, so it was a great chance to go see him do a set. But he came on stage to do Laughing Boy uh, with them, so yeah, definitely they were they were in each other's pocket for sure. Go, and I can really hear it in this song. Um, I, I love that you know the, this whole thing, the wind and the rain. Like there, there are a number of songs out there that use harsh weather as a metaphor for harsh times, and that you know, this is essentially that sort of song. I mean, you know, you think about you know, go back to so- songs like uh, you know, the blues standard "Stormy Monday" or uh, even you know, "Crowded Houses Four Seasons in One Day." You know, um, some people say it's about Melbourne, but it's you know, it's really it's a song about hard times. I'm convinced of that because you know you'd never write about you know Melbourne having shit weather surely not um, I, I love um, uh, really uh, I mentioned just briefly before about you know the rhythm section and uh, you know Lawler and uh, Schindler they just do wonders on this uh, it, it's a really tight little song but, and, and Jim Dickinson's big room production uh, just works a treat I think here on, on, the, on this song so you reckon this is a single I'm going to have to look that up you may well be right. Like I say, I recall hearing it a lot on the radio. Okay. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's go have a bit of a chat about the um, the next ballad on the album. This is a song called "Darling, Please." This is really one of his loveliest ballads, and you know, this album aside, he did write a few really beautiful love songs. Um, and you know, it's—I guess thematically, it's something that's not really that new, you know, because it's a song about you know, someone from the wrong side of the tracks, right, uh, singing to you know, his girl on the other, you know, the, the Romeo and Juliet sort of thing. Um, but you know, it, really, there's no doubting his. His uh, dedication since you'll never ever want to praise while I can get down on my knee. Oh, darling, please. I mean, in anyone else's hands, that really, that could have been a cringe moment, but there's just something so nice about this. And um, I, I, have, I have a song, I have something I want to compare it to, but before I do, uh, your thoughts on this one? It is a beautiful song, isn't it? To me, it, you know, a lot of albums will have, you know, the obligatory ballad, but the, the couple of slow songs on this album are really well placed as well that they they sort of break up the the album and and give your ears a bit of a listen and a, a bit of a rest so you're listening to 
to something different and, and brings you back to the to the rockier stuff. So I really like the way they paced it. And yeah, again, it could be a really you know icky, sticky, sugary, <laughs> awful thing. But it, it yeah, and, I, and I'm not a I'm not a big lover of that sort of tune, but occasionally, moments like this, it, yeah, it, it is simply a beautiful song. It's not at all cheesy, no. Um, and uh, what I was going to say, what it reminded me of, I guess especially, and this is where the accordion comes into play, it makes me think of that moment in the Disney film Lady and the Tramp. You know, they're, they're, uh, you know the, the, the two dogs they're eating in, uh, in the Italian restaurant and you know, having their spaghetti and they end up kissing because they, they're eating the same strand of spaghetti and the, the waiter is, or the chef is singing La Bella, not that. Um, and it just reminds me of that. You know? But you know, he's, he's a dog from the wrong side of the track singing to his uh, lady love. I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what Mick Thomas would think if I'm you know, comparing his song to um, a Disney song, but I, I, I think it's a great song. If I got him a gig in a Disney soundtrack, he'd be very happy. <laughs> yes, there you go, Nick. You can go on and do whatever you whatever you want. Your, your, the royalties have got you covered. All right, uh, let's go on to uh, this. This is another huge live favourite. I'll tell you why in a minute. Why I'm wondering why Nick Thomas never cut this song out of the set. But uh, this is a song called "Ticket in Tats." So for those of you living outside of Australia, uh, Tats is short for Tattersalls, which is, I think, the main lottery or runner of lotteries in uh, this country. So, you know, the singer in this song is talking about, you know, he doesn't have much money, he doesn't really, you know, have much in the way of material possession, but he's enjoying a beautiful day in Sydney sunshine, and he might not have a whole lot in his life, but he feels like he's a man with a ticket in tats. He's got blue blue skies, window shopping, and a back lane full of cats. It's just, it's a really beautiful, optimistic song. Uh, and uh, I don't know, well, if, if Mickey T would have hate me comparing Darling Please to Lady in the Tramp, He's probably going to hate me even more for comparing Ticket and Tats and feel to Mrs. Brand has got a lovely daughter uh, by Herman's Hermits. It's got that sort of musical style of whimsy about it, don't it? Am, I, am I crazy? Or, uh, if you can imagine a rock band playing music. Did this get a lot of play in Melbourne? This got a, also got a lot of play in Adelaide on the radio. Really, I, really, up until up until Father's Day, I don't think I ever heard this stuff on the radio. Uh, or maybe you see, the, you know, the Adelaide's version of, of Triple R back those days. Okay, I listened to a lot, so you know the um, indie radio station. But the, uh, you know, what I was talking about before, mate, this how um, 
Mick Thomas's lyrics take me back to my childhood. This is a classic example, and it won't mean anything to you in Melbourne, but in when I was a kid, you know, as as you just said, Tattersall's the family-owned company ran, um, you know, lottery sort of gambling in Australia. It, everything covered everything. So, yes. you know, it was was a it was a common phrase for my father to buy a ta- ticket in tax. Uh. So, but but in, you know, maybe when I was a teenager, that all changed in South Australia. They don't they don't actually own any of the gambling that sort of stuff in South Australia anymore. So that that sort of colloquialism is gone. From, from this part of the world. My kids, if I said that to them, they would not have any idea what I was talking about. So it's it's interesting, that, and, I, and I know it's still um, still called that in Melbourne, it's, but it's it's not here. So it's, you know, it's a, for me, it's a, a, a phrase, a throwback to the 60s and 70s that I, that I, ha- that I don't hear anymore. So I, I never actually ever considered the phrase itself as being sort of like a, a cultural standpoint if you if you will but it is again it's you know it's like a barry humphreysism yep. the way he talks about boots and um yeah i love the way mick mick does that and again maybe maybe didn't mean anything to you because just you know you know when i come to Melbourne, i see it i think oh yeah i remember but yeah <laughs> not, not here anymore and, and it's i i guess it's another thing that's interesting is because like nowadays especially you know we you know with the uh, advent of you know the big casinos and the like and we hear people losing all their money and losing all their homes, and your gambling scene as you know, uh, rightly so, as you know, this horrible sort of thing. But it was, it was almost like you know, buying a ticket in Tats Lotto. You know, even if you bought it on a weekly basis, um, you, you know, spent a couple of dollars or something like that. It wasn't like going to the uh, uh, going to the pub and playing on the one one armed bandit and spending all your money. It was just. It was a thing that everyone in the suburbs did, I guess, and without sort of wanting to over romanticise, you know, making a gambling thing out of it. But, but um, yeah, I guess is that association. You know, he's not trying to make some big statement about gambling or anything. It was just like I've got this wonderful day ahead of me. I love the sunshine. I can afford enough money for a beer, and I feel like a guy who know who's got this ticket in test. Because you know, we always thought if you bought the Tats Lotto ticket, unlike now, where you you know you buy a whole bunch of extra squares in the in the lottery and you spend a thousand dollars and you do all these weird ass systems no back then you filled in six boxes in the in the uh, in each square you paid your three four dollars whatever it was and you know we all sort of thought all right this saturday night that's our night we're going to win we're going to win this saturday night you you felt lucky you felt good um which i guess it might be a, a thing that every gambler does but there seemed to be something less onerous about it then. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, um, and for me, it sort of paints a, again, you know, a snapshot in time, a cinematic sort of thing where, um, in a sort of, you know, in a sort of James Dean sort of context, but put that into an Australian context in the, in the 70s of, it just puts me there. I'm trying to think of an Australian movie that sort of, it just, yeah, take, takes me back 20, 30 years, which is, right. I find interesting. I'm going to make two more points about this song. I alluded before uh, we started talking about this uh, about this song that I, I thought I was really very surprised that Mick Thomas uh, allowed this song to keep going on in the band. He's a very, very brave man, and he obviously loves the fans. But the, the every time in in the chorus, and he sings the chorus about four times. 
so making it all the more dangerous. But the opening line of the chorus is, now I'm 10 cents short of a dollar, but I feel like a man with a ticket in tats. Every time he sang that line, the, the audience would throw 10 cent pieces <laughs> at him. And I'm pretty sure that on more than one occasion, he ended up with a shiner. And you know, he learned to be pretty good, like you'd see him. When they'd sing that line, he'd lift up his guitar and use it to cover his face, you know, to stop uh, getting the uh, the coins in the eye. But I had seen those ten cent pieces fly into his eyes, and you sort of think you know, that the the audience uh, they love the band and they love Mickey T, and they'd, you know, they'd be a little bit more careful. But no, they they cut him no slack, and um, I don't think I ever saw a gig where they didn't do this song. And you know, it's, it's really to his credit that you know they, they, it was dangerous. You know, he he and um, you know, possibly you know uh, anyone else who was like in the front row of the band would would uh, run the risk of of getting these ten cent pieces thrown in their eye. So it was sort of funny and sort of tragic, but but anyway. Cool. Um, and the other thing now. I'm going to ask you because uh, you know you might have a, a better knowledge of this than I do, but there was a a show in I think in the nineteen was it the nineteen sixties the show My Name's McGauley, Australian it's TV show. Time, well, no, yeah. I'm not <laughs> well, well, this is this is I'm trippy. I thought you, you might know something about, and I haven't gone and done a, an internet search of this, but I vaguely recall having heard that there was a show called My Name's McGauley. I think my sister might have told me years ago about that. And I think the opening catchphrase of the show was, my name's Magooly, what's yours? So at this one bit before uh, the whistling solo, we haven't mentioned there's a whistling solo in this. And, uh, you know, it, it sort of works here. But, you know, rather, so yeah, on the record, Mick Thomas you know, sings like, before the whistling solo starts out and the band's leading into it, he, he says, my name's Magooly. What's yours? And it's nothing to do with anything else in the song. But they made it a challenge that every time they'd play the song live, they would do something different. They'd say something different or whatever it would be. And I don't remember most of what they did. I just remember every time it was something different. And I think only once I heard them sing or say, my name's McGooley, what's yours? But what was really absolutely piss funny was um, where Pete Lawler, the bass player would start singing a couple of lines from Madonna's Express Yourself about you know, putting your love to the test, come and show me that your love is real, in the middle of this song. And we just, we pissed ourselves very, very... You never thought you'd hear you know, the name Madonna mentioned on a Love That Album show, certainly not one to do with weddings, parties, anything, but there you go. That's They were, fu- they were funny guys. All right. Uh, all right, so last couple of songs, but I've got probably a fair bit to talk about this next one. This is a song called Rosarden. Falls, who but sets our minds be 
probably goes to show that I didn't really have my head in what was going on a lot of the time in the news. Now, I, I, I think my only recollection about Tasmanian politics and goings-on from the 80s, my biggest recollection was about the Franklin River and the, and the damned situation to do with that. Uh, uh, Shane Howard putting together that all-star cast to write that song, Let the Franklin Flow, and you know, all that was going on for blogging uh, and that situation. But do you remember anything about uh, the Ross Arden situation? Alright, I'll do the news real thing, because I, I did a bit of the, the search. Now, this is not the only time, and I, I mentioned before in the show, that Michael Thomas liked to return to various themes several times throughout weddings, parties, anything's career. And he must have had a big fascination with um, mining and mining towns. Uh, he's not so sort of like, you know, at, at, not at any stage does he say, like, you know, mining a good thing, a bad thing from the environment, whatever. But he was talking on a more personal level, like what it meant to the miner, to, to the working guy, or what it meant to the family of the working guy. So the story of Rossardin essentially, uh, back in 1981, uh, Rossarden was this tin mining town that I think it had been there, so I working for about 50 years. And Kerry Packer bought it out. What initially happened in, in the town was he went and improved all the mining facilities, invested money into the town, uh, mechanised it, and just made things a whole lot better. And they people, basically most of the people who lived in the town, or all the people who lived in the town were mining families or people who'd gone and built their careers around the mining industry. So, you know, the local you know, people, they had whatever, eateries or, or accountancy firms or whatever it was that they did, it all was based around helping the miners and their families. That was the purpose of this town. So, Everyone was very happy for the first year because you know, um, uh, Kerry Packer had gone and put all this money into it. And then without word of explanation, it seemed, back in 1982, the mines got closed down. And the majority of the mine employees were sacked, uh, meaning that the town's reasons for its existence and the families were in really severe financial straits. Um, so there were, you know, the two sides, depending on which newspapers that you read or who you blamed, whatever. Uh, the workers claimed that there was no reason for this because the tin, there was still plenty of tin available for mining. Management claimed that the ore was not of the grade that they had expected from their investment. Uh, in So in the song... Michael Thomas writes from the perspective of a miner who's lost his job, so there's no doubt where uh, you know, Mickey T wants us to you know, pledge our sympathies for. Uh, interestingly enough, for a song that was so much about the worker, and this, this is not like a Billy Bragg up the rights of the workers, it's a more personal song about how this affected this guy who wants to feed his family rather than it being a union sort of song. And in fact, the unions come for a bit of a bashing. 
from uh, Nikki T in this song. James, the character's perspective is that uh, you know the unions did fuck all to help the working guy. You know, the, 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 there's this um, great line in the song: "Some people like playing football, some people like playing God, but none like being out of work when there are kids that need to be fed." Uh, and basically, he sort of like uh, accuses both management of the mines and the unions for point scoring. So it's it's an interesting perspective because you know normally you'd sort of think, well, it's, it's either you're pro management or you're pro the union, and here it's a lot more personal. It's just about um, the working guy who just wants to keep his family fed. It's it's a really emotional sort of song. And, and again, you know, try and think of Australian songwriters that, that sort of capture that, take a, uh, an event, an Australian event, and, and make it into a really interesting song. There isn't too many, like, you know, Paul Kelly, obviously, and, and, and maybe John Schumann. I was going to ask you what your, your uh, thoughts about John Schumann. I, I love John Schumann. I think he's brilliant. And I, 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 But again, I was not, a, you know, Red Gum in their early years in Adelaide had a bit of a cringe factor for me, but I was... So the more I sort of, the more effort I made to sort of listen and and take it in, the more I loved it. And and you know things he's done recently, like the the Henry Lawson stuff he's done, I love it. And again, I found that Henry Lawson's stuff in, in school was the most dreadful, boring drivel. <laughs> maybe I'm getting old. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's it's interesting. I wonder whether people who like you know like ourselves who found that it was being taught in a dull way in school so I managed to come back to it later on. I mean, you've gone and found your link through through uh, John Schumann. Um, I'd be interested to know if any of the listeners out there, uh, at least amongst the Australian audience, or for that matter amongst American and English audiences, whether there are any poets or story writers of you know traditional tales that you've since come back to in your adult years and said, right now I get it. It was just... You know, taught in a dreary way in school. Be interesting. It's, it's very strange, isn't it? And I, I, you know, I always had a, a, a sort of weird fascination with American history, and I've only found out in recent years, when I when I was sort of digging into my family tree, that my that my mother's great grandfather, so many generations back, was actually a general in the in the Union Army. It's a, You're shitting so, me, really? No, absolutely not. And I was just blown away because he was um, he was sort of an advisor to Abraham Lincoln in. In the in the Civil War, he was he was quite old in the Civil War. You know, he was well in his eighties, I think. Yep. Um, but yes, yeah, fascinating stuff. I've actually got a copy of a, a letter that Abraham Lincoln wrote to him on my office wall. But wow. again, you know, I I found American history fascinating, and I never knew why. But and even English history and European history, but Australian history just didn't do it. Maybe and maybe you're right the way they taught it in school, and I don't think they still teach it. They teach it much in school. I don't remember my kids. You know, talking much about having any sort of Australian history stuff taught to them in school. Right. Well, if there's anyone out there um, from uh, from these government programs, because it's been talk in recent years about oh, we must increase the level of uh, history taught in the school. I, mean, I, I guess, I guess for uh, you know the American listeners, this would be unthinkable to know that really we come out of we come out of school, regardless of how dull it's taught. Um, that a, a lot of us have come out of school sort of. We might know, you know, certain aspects about Australian history, but I certainly find, like, you know, my knowledge, I have a lot of gaps and I've sort of not returned to it. 
Yeah, it is a bit sad. And, and, you know, things like if you ask most Australians who was the first Prime Minister of Australia, they, they can't tell you. But, you know, we all know who the first President of the United States was. It's, very, it's a weird weird reflection on, on Australia, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, um, but evidently, but someone like uh, you know, Mickey T, we, we uh, Michael Thomas. We, we have no, but well, no, but in, in relation to this, you know, he obviously is someone who has a passion for history. I mean, both you know, contemporary events and you know, historical events. I mean, I, I'm sure he knows his Australian history like a, like the back of his hand. Um, I, I just want to make sort of one more observation in relation to Paul Kelly because you know, we've already got to mention him a little bit in this show, and I, I guess probably the one one distinction between Michael Thomas's songwriting. And Paul Kelly's songwriting is that Paul, Ke- I mean, they're both master storytellers, but I guess Paul Kelly can write, and even if he's writing in the first person about a particular character, he tends to, I don't know, I won't say not get emotional, but he, but certainly Michael Thomas wears his heart on his sleeve a lot more than uh, my perception of what Paul Kelly does. He tends to remain I guess more neutral storyteller. Here's a story. Uh, you decide for yourself whether you get emotional about it. Whereas Michael Thomas is, there's no doubt where his allegiances lie, and yet he's you know, none the worse a, a, a storyteller for all of that. Because sometimes you've got to get emotional about a particular subject matter. But I just tend to think that like a song like "From Little Things Big Things Grow" is a fascinating story that uh, Paul Kelly. Um, uh, goes and tells, and we, we spoke about it on the uh, Paul Kelly special a few weeks ago. But it's more, I guess, matter of factual. I mean, there's a great emotional story to be told there, but uh, Michael Thomas tells a story of Rossardin in a very different sort of way, a lot more uh, hard on the sleeve. Mm. All right. Well, and um, again, this I'll just go. sort of jumped out at me as a as a pop as a possible Paul Kelly tune. But well, one thing I was gonna ask you, that this this also jumped out at me is this will be a great tune live. did they play do you recall the guys playing this has sort of been awesome live. You know what? you're you're right, 'cause it, it's a very rocky track and probably the most guitar oriented track apart from a tell they won't believe on on the album. But uh, you know what? I don't think and I saw them really, as I mentioned at the start of the show, a lot of times, but I don't think I can ever recall hearing uh, them do Ross Arden Light. Um, there, there are some, which, which is which is quite unusual because, you know, they, this, this back catalogue, I mean, it wasn't, in the end, it really wasn't a large back catalogue. And you, you could go on various nights and hear, you know, some songs uh, thrown in on one night and taken out on another night. So they, they'd like to mix things up a little bit. But, of course, there were always core songs like you know, Tell They Won't Believe in Ticket and Tats that they were going to do every time. Um, so you'd sort of think that at some stage it would have done every song in their back catalogue, you know, even songs like this, you know, a, a small number of times. And given how emotional he gets in the storytelling on this one, you'd sort of think, well, why didn't they do this one live? I mean, look, if you're if you're a Weddows fan out there and you heard this one live, please email me or jump on the Facebook page and and uh, tell me so. I'd be fascinated to hear. It. But I really don't think I ever recall hearing this song. Being done live, so which is, you know, it's a real shame because it's a, it, it, it's um, you know, musically, it's a, you know, it's a rocking sort of song, and, and, and musically, it tells a, it tells a really fascinating story. Um, all right, look, well, you think um, the band would want to play because it would have been a lot of fun to play. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But well, they, I don't know, 
didn't it didn't happen. I, uh, at least at least not any time that I went. Maybe every other time, but they thought, oh, there's that skinny guy with the beard in the front row. Now we're not going to play because he likes it. So, I don't know. Who can tell? All right, so we'll now um, finish off. This is uh, the last song on the album. This is called Manana Manana. <laughs> the street where we walked with the rain on our clothes and the air is so dry that my head starts to swim Weddings, parties, anything in the album in a completely different style to how they opened it you know, Streets of Four uh, Streets of Fords, I should say was this raw, tough as nails start to the record, and Manana Manana is a, a melancholy waltz. Um, it re- it really, with an album that sort of lends itself to all different sorts of moods. Um, it was interesting and probably a brave move to end the album in, in uh, this fashion. It's a waltz. I don't know. Have I ever mentioned on this show that a waltz is the saddest of all time signatures? Quite possibly. Maybe once or ten thousand times, um, and really the the mandolin at the song's opener it gives it that sort of beautiful Mediterranean feel. I just it's really very very bittersweet arrangement to this. Um, before I sort of go tearing down, what were your thoughts about this song? I, I, I don't dislike the tune, but it's 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 probably the one tune on the album that sort of is a bit. For me, a bit disjointed. But, okay. Um, Do you think it was placed in the wrong position for you? Would you have really liked to have it ended a little bit more raucously? Or? I really don't know. It's um, yeah. I just it just it sort of it seems a bit tacked on to me. But uh, you know, in the context of a song on its own, I really like it. It's but it, it takes me somewhere different, like you, you sort of alluded to it then. But it, it sort of takes me off to. You know, a, a, a lazy Sunday afternoon sitting around the sun, but you know, it could be in Spain or Portugal. It, it's sort of got that feel about it for me. Mm. He um, he's written a number of times about uh, about travel. Obviously, travel and maybe European travel in particular is something that's a fascinating subject to him. So, like on the, on the album King Tide, he uh, wrote a song called The Year She Spent in England which is a story about a girl who leaves her small town and her small town friends to you know, do what a lot of Australians do, which is spend a gap year in England. Uh, but she, you know, she sort of thinks, well, you know, I'm more adventurous than, uh, than you people who are staying behind the small town. I'm going to go have an adventure. But she comes back, finds that nothing's changed in the small town, but then she proceeds to bore people with, you know, continual stories about the year she spent in England and you know, well you, know, you haven't changed that much either you've based your whole life on this one year so you know um, 
it, it's an interesting take on uh, on travel. And then there's uh, another song on uh, I think Difficult Loves called uh, Four Corners of the World, which is about a relationship falling apart in exotic places. But you know the singer realizes if they can't make things work in Melbourne, is it even worth trying to make it work in Paris? So on Manana Manana. You, you get this lonely guy lamenting that you know his girlfriend is tramping around uh, the, um, the the sites of Europe, uh, and she's having this great time in you know, Spain and in Portugal, and he's contrasting it with being stuck here in Fitzroy. And you, as an Adelaide guy, would probably you know, get to smile a bit where he sings, uh, "And Melbourne in summer is no place for fun." So, uh, you know, you probably get a bit of but I suspect it's just, you know, sour grapes, you know, you're, you're off having a lovely time and all I can do is, you know, think about you having this wonderful time and I don't even have enough money for a beer. <laughs> and, and funny you should say that, because Melbourne is, you know, I'll, I quite happily come to Melbourne for a concert in the summer or go to the cricket, so it's not that bad. Yeah, well, I would, I would hope that you think so, but, yeah. And Mickey T, he's just, he's just sort of absorbing this character because we, he's, uh, his love for writing about new things about Melbourne like, is, is well known. I think one song that uh, was very popular from Maureen Days was Under the Clocks, uh, which for those of you who don't live in Melbourne, uh, refers to the, uh, the famous clocks at Flinders Street Station, which are a, uh, uh, a famed meeting place for people. You know, oh, where will we catch up? Oh, I'll meet you under the clocks. And you don't need to say at Flinders Street Station. It's just a world-given thing. That's, and that's certainly romantic song. But um, this is uh, more Mickey Thomas writing uh, writing about, you know, I, I'm, I miss you. I'm, I'm, I'm having a horrible time here in Fitzroy and in these exotic places in Europe. And... Uh, but yeah, it is. It is a for for me. It's melodically absolutely beautiful, and the mandolin just really takes you takes you somewhere. Um, but yeah, no, a, a great song for me. An unusual way to end uh, an album, but and maybe a bit of a brave move. But I think for me, I think it works. So, any final thoughts on the album as a whole? No, I, I guess the I guess the only thing you know you're so familiar with it, but it, I really enjoyed going and, and sort of digging into an album that I didn't pay a lot of attention to. So, that, yeah, there was a lot of fun. And I've, I've sort of rekindled the, the few tunes that I remembered and loved from it, which which was really pleasant. Like, um, you know, A Tale They Won't Believe, I'd forgotten about it. I had literally forgotten about the song. Yep, yep. Okay, so do you think it's an album you'd uh, uh, come back to from like now that you've had your um, Absolutely. friendship revived? Yeah. Like you said, I'm, I'll be digging, digging into the back catalogue a bit more. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. All right. What we'll do at this stage is um, introduce Eric Reanimator, and he's gone and uh, contributed another wonderful album I love segment for the show, and he's going to be talking about the band Blood on the Saddle, their album Poison Love. We'll be back uh, after the segment to um, give our salutations. And farewells, and uh, I'll talk a bit about what's happening in episode number 50. <laughs> Only one show away, it's, it's just down the road. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. 
Today we're going to be talking about the 1986 album Poison Love by the band Blood on the Saddle. Emerging from the LA 80s scene, Blood on the Saddle was truly a cowpunk band mixing traditional country sounds with high energy punk and roll. By the time the band got around to Poison Love, there was definitely more of a 60s pop vibe going on with the band. I would compare them to an edgier X as both Greg Davis, the founder of the band, and bass player Annette Zalaskins took turns on vocals. Let's take a listen. simple music, but there's definitely passion and despair and honesty in it. When this record came out, the cowboy imagery being used in music in LA was oftentimes in hair metal with chaps and boots and the motorcycle standing in for the horse. Also at the time, country music had become very pop and slick and in a lot of ways soulless, whereas Blood and the Saddle injected their whole being into these songs. Fortunately, they never garnered much of a following, and their LPs went out of print. 
I'm not aware of any legitimate CD reissues of any of their 80s output. And as we watch the age of the compact disc fade away, I don't believe that we're ever going to see a reissue of any kind of the band's work. Maybe we'll get the MP3s. We'll have to wait and see. At any rate, if you do run across the Poison Love LP, or indeed any of the Blood on the Saddle LPs in your local record shop or discount bins, highly recommend picking them up. The cover art for Poison Love, in fact, is one of my favorites. I will post the image on the Love That Album Facebook page. But let's leave now with the title track, Poison Love. This is Eric Reanimator, and I'll catch you all on the flip side. Thanks once again, uh, Eric, for another great segment of an album that I love. Eric will be back on the next show, but not doing an album I love segment. We'll talk in a couple of minutes about what his involvement will actually be and uh, your own good involvement. We'll talk about that uh, fairly shortly. But um, before we go any further for uh, me to read out the podcast Roll of Honour, um, tell me a little bit about what's actually happening in that wonderful bar in Adelaide that you like to sit in. Hopefully lots in the pipeline. I think Greedy Smith is on this week. Uh, it was good to catch up with him again. He's always good fun mm-hmm. from, from Mental as Anything. But I've, couple, I've got a couple of things in the pipeline, and as soon as I mention them, will jinx me and they'll fall through, but I can't help myself. I've, I've got a possibility of getting Belinda Carlisle on the show, and I love Belinda. Oh, wow. So fingers fingers crossed that's um, that's happening. And I'm, I'm working on Virgil Donati is doing a... Um, a tour, a drum workshop tour. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh goodness me! Don't die on me. As, as we die, as we die in the background, he's doing you, a drum the, workshop tour of Australia. Wow! So he so he, he now lives he now lives oh, in America, doesn't he? Well, he has for a long time. Yeah, 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 yeah many years. So, um, hopefully, Virgil is on my list. But um, yeah, there are a couple of things that, fingers crossed, I can pull them off. So, uh, very excited about them. And, and is, is Sue worried about you uh, speaking to Belinda Carlisle? I mean, you're not going to uh, drool or dribble or anything, are you? Oh, when I, I must admit, when I was a teenager, teenager there was a lot of dribbling with Belinda. Ah, fascinating. So, is, is she um, is, is she preparing to come? She's here touring for Australia a... very soon in mm. in August, I think. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you... she comes quite. She comes out reasonably often. All right. She's yeah, and I. You know, her solo stuff is. She reminds me a bit of um, of Deb Conway. She's just got that lovely, fresh sound, and just you know, love everything about her. Okay, right. Any so anything else that's happening uh, on sitting in the bar in Adelaide? Not that I can think of off the top of my head. Well, for the li- for the <laughs> listeners out there, they always hear me talk about it. But you know, how do listeners find you? Um, if you do the Google thing, sitting in a bar in Adelaide, or the the show is on um, streams out of um, a company called Mevio, so it's Adelaide Rock Show. 
www.mevio.com. You really should get the iTunes thing done. I was going to help fix you up with that when I came to Adelaide last. But but I have, I have noticed, I have noticed there's so many um, podcast directories out there that just do it all for me. So, you know, there's a, there's got to be a dozen of them with the, with the show kicking around. So I'm, I'm not sure how they do it, but they do it for me. Yeah. Well, so out there, if you want to hear uh, some really fantastic interviews with a wide range of artists, and you know, really, uh, Michael will—he speaks to the stars and he speaks to some guy down the pub. Just as long as they make great music, he's—he speaks to them and always wonderful interviews. I'm, I'm still sort of like you know shaking my head. How the hell did you get Fee Waybill? How did you get Fee Waybill? It's just. Uh, just that, that was that was that was one of the uh, one of the more wonderful. Yeah, but Prairie Prince comes to town, and I, I don't I can't get an interview with him. I oh well, can't win them all. Yeah, well, I don't know. D- did you say something insulting on the Fee Waybill show about Prairie? Maybe no, absolutely not. I no, the quite the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, Adelaide Rock Show dot dot com is how you can stream it, and if you just Google sitting in a bar in Adelaide. Uh, podcast, then that, there'll that be me, any numbers. Sorry, go on. That, that, that Mevio page has an archive on it anyway. You can oh, okay. download any of the shows way, 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 way back. Ooh, oh, they're so not. I'm going to trump you for 50. I've, I've, I've got 400 coming up soon. Oh, fuck a duck. Yeah, I, I, yes, well, sorry, but, you know, my, my 50, my 50 shows were done with. Sweat and toil and well, mind you, so are yours. Um, all right. Well, I, I'm catching up. I'm breathing down your neck. I'm breathing Absolutely. down. Absolutely. So, hey, really, 400. It was only like, what is it? When did we do 300? I, I joined you for your 300th show. Yeah. It was last year, but well, yeah, what, what are you, what are you up to? So, what are you up to four, now? Four, um, um, 380 something. Jesus. 380 shows. And 400 pops up on, if I consult the Magic Diary, on the 1st of December. There you go. Good Lord. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite an achievement, my friend. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. I'm looking forward to, uh, to hearing that said he going nudge, 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 nudge uh, for the 400th show. But um, anyway, uh, so yes, uh, so that's how people should find sitting in a bar in Adelaide and listen to it, I highly recommend it. Um, quickly, I'll go through the other uh, podcasts that I'm a big fan of. And I'm, I always feel like I haven't got everything written down here, but you know, um, this is certainly the essential shows that you should be following out for. Paleo Cinema and Martian Drive-In podcast hosted by uh, my Melbourne compatriot, ex-Sydney, but you know, he's a Melbourne right? Now, uh, Terry Frost, uh, although I think he'd like to actually emigrate to Darwin. I think he's taken quite a shine to uh, the weather over there in Darwin, so I know we might lose him from Melbourne. Uh, the aforementioned Silver and Gold, hosted by Dr. Zom and Piccoloaf, uh, both who have uh, been on Love That Album. Loaf quite recently talking about uh, Tom Waits with me, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, hosted by Samurai and Will Smith. And by the time this episode goes to air, I'm very proud to say that I'll be uh, hosting a Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema bonus episode. I'll be doing a show with Tim Merrill, 
and uh, a guy called Rodrigo Obon. So uh, this will be a really, truly international show. Tim is in South Korea and Rodrigo is in Sweden and myself in Australia. And we're going to be talking about a couple of classic jazz films. Uh, 1986's Round Midnight and 1987's Bird, directed by Clint Eastwood. So um, go to the GGTMC page, ggtmc.com. And that bonus episode should be up there by the time this is out. Uh, very excited to be talking film with those uh, two guys, and it's an honour to be doing it under the GGTMC banner. Uh, Better in the Dark, hosted by Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Those guys get very, very passionate about their film. Uh, always a pleasure to uh, listen to them, and uh, I've got to get Derek on the show. I've had Thomas on the show a couple of times. Uh, Derek has suggested that we talk some Stevie Wonder but um, that was just initially. We haven't actually spoken about that in a little while, so got to have him come on very soon. Might have to uh, take him up on the Stevie Wonder offer. Uh, what else? Uh, the film podcast uh, used to be the List Film Podcast, um, but uh, now they just they've dropped the list and they're just talking film without lists. Uh, what else can I mention? Um, oh, it's in the film. World Film Rave, hosted by Justin Oberholzer. I'm looking forward to his uh, upcoming show from basically from where we are recording. Episode 21, he's going to be talking about uh, a film I want to see coming up called Only God Forgives host, uh, with uh, Ryan Gosling. And I don't think Ryan Gosling can do any wrong at the moment. He's uh, always making really, really interesting films. I mean, not always. I think A Place Beyond the Pines, one that he recently made, I didn't think was a brilliant film. Uh, based on the last 40 minutes of it, but it was a long film. But Ryan Gosling's involvement was absolutely fantastic. He's a, a terrific actor. So I look forward to hearing what he has to say about Only God Forgives, and I want to see that film. And he's pairing that up with a film called Barbarian Sound Studio, which I only just watched this evening uh, on uh, DVD with Max. And I've not quite made up my mind what I think about that one. It's a very strange film, but um, I look forward to hearing what Justin has to say. In the music podcast listening world there is the list music podcast with ricardo vk jenny and juan and once again me being a bit of a media whore podcast whore as uh, my wife joanne calls me i'm going to be doing a show with them uh in the next week uh the list music podcast and we're going to be talking about uh our five favorite uh, our, our top five side one track ones which is um, going to be an interesting topic I'll have to get off here, your all-time side one, track ones, Michael. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on what makes a, a good album opener? Oh, well, I've got lots of the own, you know, lots of albums. I was only thinking about this, though, that lots of albums, the um, the first song is the only one I remember. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, I don't know if that's a, that, so they, they, give you their best opening shot. I mean, you know, the, the opening shot for an album is definitely supposed to be its um, its calling card. This is what you're going to expect. But, but yeah, all too but, often, I guess well, it fades after that. As an example, a friend of mine texted me today saying, he, you know, and he's my age, he said, oh, you know, I've listened to a Led Zeppelin album for the first time in my life today. I thought, wow. <laughs> oh, really? And I was thinking, you know. Well, a a think particular Led Zeppelin or any Led Zeppelin album? Any. Any at all. Good Lord, he's, 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 yeah. he's in his 40s, yeah. So, got me thinking, you know, the the sort of, and 
you know, as an example, Presence was a, a used Led Zeppelin album in 76. The mm. only tune that I really remember is the opening song called Achilles' Last Hand. Right. Love the song. But, I, you know, I, I can't really remember the rest of the album. I haven't listened to it for ages. I've got to tell you, it's I, not one of my favourite Zeppelin albums. I think All yeah, of My Love was probably the only song I remember from it. Me either. But it's, yeah, the, the opening song I still remember. Okay. So, well, we'll be doing... Um uh, the, these opening songs and talking, you know, hopefully about the art of the opening song. What's its role? Uh, does it serve its job if no other song on the album is that memorable? Or, or what's its role? You know, can it be placed anywhere else? I hopefully we'll have a good discussion with that. Uh, by the time this show goes up, we'll have already had that discussion. You never know. Uh, the all-time top ten with uh, Ben Eisen. He's been on Love That Album a couple of times. I've been on the all-time top ten a couple of times, and always good fun. The um, every show, a lot of a uh, lot of fun to hear what um, it is that he's going to come up with, whatever the list might be. And uh, that guy certainly knows his uh, pop trivia. He, uh, he makes mention that he's uh, been reading the magazines and listening to records for years and years and years. So um, he always comes up with some interesting stories and uh, some really great rotating series of co-presenters. Uh, some some very colourful characters, so um, uh, always good fun. All time top ten. Uh, the Soda Jerker on songwriting team of Simon and Brian. And if you've been listening to Love That Album, you know that I've been praising them to the skies. I took a bit of a break for a couple of months, but uh, they're back. They're back in action. And um, I think they put out an episode just the other week where they were speaking to um, the core duo from uh, They Might Be Giants. So if you're a They Might Be Giants fan, you do well to uh, tune into that. And actually, now that I think of it, Ben's next show getting put out in the next week for all-time top 10, uh, he and his guests will be talking about their top 10 They Might Be Giants songs. So um, a, a bit of a podcast nirvana for uh, They Might Be Giants fans out there. Search them out. Um, the inside, uh, inside Outcast with Evil Dave and Dr. Brandy's sexy voice, PhD, talking about music and games and films and all sorts of stuff. Um, and I'm still wondering whether that PhD is real, Dr. Brandy's sexy voice. It's, I don't know if that is your name. Um, and who else? Oh, Feed My Ears, which is not a podcast, but it's a, the excellent Facebook page run by a really great community that's been put together by John Ross, and he's been on the show uh, a couple of times, and he's actually coming back to love that album uh, for episode 52. I won't talk about that now, but he's given me a challenge. Oh boy, he's given me a challenge for uh, episode 52, but more about that when we get to episode the end of episode 51. Uh, so let's talk very briefly about episode 50. It's coming up in uh, two to three weeks' time. Episode 50, so, I mean, I, I didn't know that I'd make it this far. I just sort of thought, oh, we're having a bit of fun. Let's do this uh, podcast talking about albums that I love with uh, uh, you know, a bunch of really interesting, musically passionate people. Uh, and, you know, we've made it to episode 50. I'm really quite excited about that. So I thought, what else could I do but gather the shooting the shit crew together and if you've listened to uh, any past shooting the shit episodes uh, that's just basically my excuse to not plan any notes let's not talk about an album in particular let's just talk about whatever is on our mind musically 
things that piss you off in the music world, things that are interesting in the music world. Just, I'm not going to ask anyone to you know, let me know in advance. We're just going to have a really spontaneous conversation. And um, I, I do know one topic that's going to be under conversation because I know it's something that uh, Eric himself is very, very passionate about. Uh, we spoke about it briefly on the Facebook page. For those of you who haven't read it, I'm not going to spoil it. So, um, yeah, that, the next show will be a shooting the shit show, but episode 50. And unfortunately, we will not be having the services of Tim Merrill for that episode because Tim uh, is uh, going on holiday for a couple of weeks, going back to Canada to uh, visit family and friends, and he will not have uh, good internet access when he goes back home for a few weeks. So uh, we'll be without him for that program. But in his place, we'll be having uh, two people. It takes two people. To, um, to replace Tim Merrill. That's how valuable he is. But we'll be having, um, as well as John Stirrett, myself and Eric Reanimator, we'll be having your good self, Mr. Michael Persh, joining us for Shooting the Shit. And we'll be having a guy who has not been on Love That Album for quite a while, probably since he said bad things about Susan Vega. And, and I said, be gone with you. Uh, and that's uh, Jeff Smith. Um, uh, he, the big Bruce Springsteen fan, but he's always good for a bit of a controversial remark. You know, he made me listen to that horrible Crows album. I mean, you know, and he has he's got the nerve to to say bad things about Suzanne Vega when getting me to listen to the horrible. I think Crows. I, had, I think I had similar Susan Vega fantasies as I did Belinda Carlisle fantasies when I was real. You know, what, I or maybe even yesterday, really. <laughs> You know, it's a funny thing. I mean, like, I looked at her on the front album covers, and I, I never had those sorts of fantasies, but I went to see her once uh, in, in concert. might have been the time that they released the 99.9 Fahrenheit Degrees album, and she just, the way how she moved like a cat on the stage, and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, she's a she's a sexy woman. She really, Absolutely. really is, you know, uh, and just, she had that, oh, she, she just the way how she moved, it was fantastic, so... um yeah, take that, Jeff Smith. Be gone with you. But no, he's he's coming back on the show to join the shooting the shit crew, and we'll um we'll have ourselves a uh, mighty fine time. Uh, I'm looking immensely forward to it being show fifty. And out there, if you, dear listener, if you wish to um get in contact and you know put forward some comment about you know what you like about the show or what you don't like about the show, or you just want to you know, say congratulations for show fifty, I'd be more than happy to um, uh, play your mp3 or read out your email whatever it is you know, just let me know that you're enjoying the show or if you want to hear any changes and there are going to be changes after show 50 but more about them at the end of show 50 you can send me an email at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au you can join the facebook group facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album to get hold of the show um, there are several ways you can listen to us on Stitcher, the Stitcher app from your iPhone or Android phone. Uh, just download the Stitcher app and search up for Love That Album. You can go to the website uh, lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or you can just type in Love That Album into iTunes. Any of those ways will um, get you to the program. I'd uh, love your feedback. Uh, if you have an idea for an album you'd like talked about on the show and you wish to join me, I'm you know I'm an open house. Um, just anything you like, um, will um, uh, all all albums will be considered. 
just no more horrible crows albums. No, I think we've, we've done done my dash with that one. Uh, I think that pretty much covers it. So um, I'd just like to say uh, many thanks once again, Michael, for uh, joining me on the show. I look forward to your company on the next one as well. Thank you, Mike. Should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. And uh, we'll see you back for episode 50 in about three weeks' time. So until then, read great books, listen to great music, watch some interesting films, have a wonderful time and be nice to each other. And uh, we'll see you soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.